Oh, he has no ears in Deadly Genesis. That's why I thought he didn't have ears. But he's had ears since, yeah. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Angelique Rocher, an attorney and well-known comics critic and journalist. You may know her from other work, including various podcasts. Angelique, why don't you go into that? Because you do so much. You wear so many hats. Also, it's so much fun to actually hear you say that live. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so very excited. Like that just brought me so much joy. Oh, uh, I'm glad. So much joy. Uh, so yeah. So, uh, you're right. I'm an attorney. I do c- culture critic, comic critic, uh, comic book editor. This is a weird thing now. Consulting editor. You've helped with the Marvel's Voices anthology series, which I really, really love. Oh, thank you. It's it's been really honestly a joy to kind of bring that series to life from the podcast um so yeah so i started off as a host of the podcast and marvel's voices crazy time like this was kind of during an explosion of nerd stuff so like i was doing a podcast for sci-fi wire called geeksplain mm-hmm. which was one of my favorites we were doing some on-air stuff where we actually got to talk about darwin uh on who won the week for the first time with the blurred girl Karen Mahorn, which is when i really started loving him mm-hmm. like i knew who darwin was but like i fell in love with him by just doing this work uh, and then I also just host for Marvel and uh, I do communications consulting. That's the adult stuff I do. Love that. Someone asked me, they were like, can we get a bonus episode all about your work as a literary agent? I was like, no, I do this for fun. I'm not. Doing yeah, this is not work. <laughs> this is not, no. not that I don't love my job, no. but like I'm going to keep these things separate. It's like how I like my Avengers and my X-Men in two very different zones you know that's sort of how i feel about it i mean i i feel like here's the thing uh avengers x-men all of you should just stay separate teams i think monica rambo could be on the sword station as their like liaison to the flat scans and i would enjoy that i would dig that because al ewing writes the shit out of that character oh she and Abigail Brand would be fun together. And she was in Sword and WandaVision. So I feel like you could do that. Otherwise, I don't want any of them. The rest of them, no. The rest or of them are Storm. no from me. Maybe Storm. Storm has precedent. Well, Storm is not an Storm Avenger. Storm. Storm's an X-Fan. We don't have to... You know. No, Storm has been I, an Avenger. I reject it. Although I did like her... <laughs> I liked her and Monica. It's like I rebuke it. Ta- yeah, no, fully. ta though, just did... I, I love that I talk about that. Like, we're friends who chat all the time. Ta- um, Mr. Coates, just, we've DM'd. He's a nice guy. Mr. Coates just did that bit where Monica and Storm link up and use their powers together, which I quite enjoyed. So, also, like, can you think of a better pairing? No. I mean, frankly, they should date, but like, that's, you know, now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Why would you? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you do that to my heart? I we all know Aurora's type, and it's like a brunette in a cat suit who can kill people. That's the kind of lady she's into. I don't detect any lies. It's just a fact. I was saying this on an earlier episode, but I think it would be really <laughs> funny if she was super into Kanon and is just like, wow, I was never into Betsy when she was in your body, but. I'm really into you because like Betsy is way too many feelings for Aurora to deal with. That's like not how Aurora plays that game. Like, I don't want to talk about our emotions. I don't want to. I'm sorry. There are literally only about three instances where Aurora talks about her 
actual Betsy emotions. would be like, I'm just feeling so conflicted about all of this murder. And Rory would be like, I'm sorry, yeah. I don't have time for this conversation. It's just not... Please, please shave my head. Yeah, it's just like, I... Right. I'm fine. No, but if you look at it, it's like Yukio, Callisto, Sage. It's a pretty... There's a trend. It's like dark hair, tight leather, kill men with their bare hands. All of the women that I would argue Storm has dated that we aren't allowed to say that Storm has dated. Look, man, what happens (laughs) in the X-Men universe sometimes just has to... Sometimes it happens between the panels. panels. That's the Claremont way, right? So... Listen. To say the least. Yeah. Um, or the most, which whichever we're saying right now. <laughs> we are here to talk about Darwin. I was intrigued when you put forth his name for a couple of reasons. One is that he just played a big role in the latest Hickman X-Men story in the vault. Yes. And a lot of people have been asking me, who is this guy? Because... Well, listen, if you're... Also, Grease 2 just played in my head, and I was just like, who's that guy? (laughs) Who's that guy? No, it's just that Sink, I've gotten questions about also, because these are two characters that haven't been used. I mean, Sink hasn't been used in 20 years since he got killed off. But with Darwin, unless you read two runs that I have said on this podcast I'm not super crazy about, which are the Brubaker Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire and the latter half of Peter David's X-Factor Investigations, he's not a character you're likely to encounter a ton. People have said, oh, who's this guy? Or like, oh, he was in the movie for a second. And we'll get to that. We'll get we don't we don't talk we'll mm. get to that we'll talk about it i'm happy to give you my feelings yeah, we'll on get it to because that. i have many so that was why one reason was that he's he's current and important right now and a lot of people were like wait wait refresh me on who this is because a lot of listeners to this podcast have jumped on with house of x and so are oh, still figuring yeah, out who yeah. everybody is well and everybody's kind of got a new life with house exactly of x too, so. and the other thing what well, yeah not least darwin who was in a real weird place when we left him before house of x so yeah <laughs> like most of the x factor characters was it was just left in a I strange mean, look the man has imbued the powers of hella and had a random one night stand on his way to go commit murder he's had a life there was a lot going on the other reason is what i said a couple of moments ago which is just that the majority of stories that darwin has featured in is stuff that i was not crazy about and therefore that i haven't reread in a long time so i don't have a ton of opinions on him i reread some of it for this episode but i was like you know it would be great fun to talk to somebody who really loves a character that i don't think that much about whereas like when we're talking about betsy or emma or storm or whoever like i have a ton of opinions that i feel the need to be like it was either going to be this or honey badger like be very be very real yeah i she's another one i didn't feel strongly about that character until very recently mariko tamaki does such a wonderful job in x23 and i'm i'm not gonna go on a tangent but like it's one of my favorite series the relationship between x23 and and honey bat it's just one of my favorite things ever that's on my list of like things to read soon i haven't read the tamaki x23 yet the cuckoos i'm trying to convince myself to like laura which because she really came in hot in an era of x-men where i kind of fell off because of the decimation and so i've never been that into the character and i know the people love her so i'm trying to i'm reading the tom taylor all new i'm gonna read the marco tamaki series You get a very different X-23 in the Mariko Tamaki series because you're getting an X-23 that's like 
living with her sister, her sister who wants to who wants to acknowledge that she's human. And so in a very Mariko Tamaki way, there's a lot of like emotional processing that happens for X23 mm-hmm. in the whole series. It's really good. Like birthdays are celebrated. Right. Well, that's nice. It's for great. Them. I've grown to really love little Gabby because I'm a Madeline Pryor head. Like that is my, like my, my big political cause, as you may know from listening to the podcast. So the fact that little Gabby is the only person on Krakoa besides Alex, who's like, wait, 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 why didn't you resurrect her? Because, because she's a, a what? A club, but I'm a clone. And they're like, oh, well, uh, mm, but no, we didn't mean it like that. It wasn't because she was a clone. It's because she was an evil clone. And Gabby's like, but she wasn't evil until she got kicked. <laughs> it's so I funny. I just have it's- a lot. Madeline has truly, I am not a Madeline Pryor stan. And I'm mostly not a Madeline Pryor stan because I'm a Jean Grey stan. Oh, well, that is difficult. And it's fine. And it's fine. It's hard. But she got a raw deal. I have thoughts on how that relationship could move in a way that is productive the way that I think Betsy and Kanan are doing because it's not that dissimilar in the in-story sense of like these are two women who got fucked with and it wasn't really either of their fault you know what I mean and that's what I'm saying that's why I can't be yeah. mad at Madeline like I can't Madeline's not Madeline as Jessica Rabbit would say she's not bad she was just, she was drawn. just drawn that way and what's particularly funny when you reread Inferno is how much Claremont doesn't want to draw her that way and how much Weezy Simonson does want to draw her that way. And the story just kind of... Well, you could tell that Claremont is just trying to create a complicated romantic love triangle. Yeah, well, and that he likes Madeline. Yeah. And Weezy doesn't care about Madeline. Madeline hasn't done anything wrong. Right. Whereas Weezy wants you to forgive Scott and Jean, so Madeline has to be as evil as possible. So it's just interesting chapter to chapter in that. The Omni just came out if you're an Inferno fan. Yeah, I also just don't, I don't like Scott Summer. Uh, that is a safe opinion to have on this podcast. So Great, because yeah. I think Scott Summers is just, I just, if you ever want to have uh, a good little laugh for three minutes, there's a bonus episode of me and James and Ro Iglehart talking about Scott Summers, and I just let him go ham for like a good <laughs> two to three minutes. It's on the Marvel's Voices uh, video uh, site on YouTube, but I was like, nope, you got no argument for me. I have a very complicated relationship with Scott. I'm pretty ambivalent about Scott until he leaves Madeline, and then I hate Scott. Mm, the only good thing about Scott is hope. See, Morrison gets me back. Because they make the character interesting in a way that I think is... And I like Scott and Emma the way Morrison wrote them. No, valid. I just don't like Scott and Emma how most people afterward wrote them because I think it became very quickly a situation where Scott was the main character and Emma was an accessory character, which is not how Morrison wrote it at all. Diamonds are a girl's best friend, but that doesn't mean Emma is an accessory. Exactly, darling. Oh, I felt so good. I made that up just then. Yeah, that was good. good. That, that was one. solid. That was very good. Thank you. If you were Joss Whedon and put that in a comic, people would call you a genius for 20 years. <laughs> so let's evolve this conversation yeah. and talk about Darwin. Let's talk about Darwin. So <laughs> first, though, let's talk about you. I'd love to hear about your origin oh, story hey. with the X-Men, how you first came oh. to these characters, what made you love them oh, and man. connect with them. And why you wanted to talk about Darwin today. And that will segue us into a conversation about Darwin. Oh, I love a good segue. Mm. So it, I, so 
at, like many other women of color from the South, it's a lot of folks, my family is extremely diverse. Like four of my great grandparents came, were immigrants, mm-hmm. very diverse. And so growing up in the South, my father was Roman Catholic. Girls had very much strict rules, even though he had four sisters and I had three sisters. You know, there was just certain things my dad wasn't going to do. And he wasn't going to bring us into a comic book shop. And part of that was my dad couldn't afford them as a kid because they were very expensive for him. And he grew up very poor. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it was just like not something girl like. At that That's time, a boy like thing. in the 80s, right. in the 80s, because like back when my dad was born in 1947. Oh, wow. So he's okay, born, yeah. you know, he's he's starting to pick up comics after a lot of stuff has happened. Yeah. Like comics have been burnt at this point. Right. right. And he really couldn't afford them, but he'd always see them at the newsstand. And so my dad gave me my first comic book when the same year I was introduced to the X-Men, which is very interesting. So my first comic book, speaking of Wheezy was the death of Superman, the trade paperback. Okay, yeah. And my my dad my dad only bought it because he's like, this was in Toys R Us. I know Superman is important. I could not afford these as kids. This is something for you to take care of. To this day I still have mm-hmm. it. I jacked up the cover. The inside is in mint condition. I've only read it twice because now I get digital. I'm digital and hardcovers only at this point. I like can't I can't do all the paper in my house. Oh, no, I have short boxes under this desk. I left almost a thousand back on the East Coast when I moved here. But like I have original Kirby's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I mean, I, I just no more. I've made a rule to myself, like no more. Oh, yeah. Modern ones. It's very it's very particular. Like I got the number ones for like Dawn of X mm-hmm. and Ten of Swords. Like I'm very particular about the singles yeah. that I get now. Off track, though. Yes. Speaking of singles. So. My sister is 10 years older than me. She meets my now brother-in-law in college. My parents used to drop me off when they went to go see the Saints play. When they used to drop me off, I learned very many things about pop culture that made me into the person I am, i.e. Mortal Kombat, pizza, Oof, Coke, yes. Street Fighter. Who's your Mortal Kombat main? Who do you play? Uh, honestly, mm, it's been a minute I was always a Sindel girl myself or Ooh, a Jade or Melina Katana moment. So Jade was kind of the one I kind of got stuck with. I don't know if that makes sense. Like she was the black girl. Did you feel like right, a connection? Right, yeah. right. Like it was like that thing where it's like, oh, I guess I'm going to be this person, um, which is probably why I do the work. I do yeah, right. No, um, I mean, it's important. I guess like, it well, and it's important, right? Even in something like Mortal Kombat, where it's very silly and they're like killing each other, it's still cool to be that character, right? To be like, oh, look, there's someone who's kind of like me. Yeah, like that's fun. I know the funny thing is like that Mortal Kombat slight tangent like led me to like being obsessed with Soul Calibur mm. and like DOA when I got to college, um, and just like loving those kind of games. Yeah, never into Marvel versus Capcom. I thought it was just a lot of button pushing and a lot of memorization. Three I wasn't is, really down for. Uh, once they got rid of the Capcom six button controls, yeah. I kind of lost. Yeah, interest. it wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. It wasn't fun mm-hmm. anymore. Um, but I feel that the other thing I was introduced to was comics. Right. So my brother-in-law, uh, shout out to him uh, and shout out to my sister for in, like trusting me. Uh, I also learned about Tetris and how Tetris can consume your life. And that's another conversation. I'm thankfully really bad at Tetris. So that's never really oh, been a problem man. for Tetris me. Tetris is actually how my Game Boy got broken. Ooh. And by broken, I mean taken away from me and thrown in a corner and the LCD screen got smashed <sighs> because I wasn't listening because I was on level 17. For the kids listening, the Zoomers out there, level 17 of Tetris is a lot 
of Tetris to accomplish. It's so stressful. Yeah. It's like hours of Tetris. Yeah. And then this is back when you couldn't save a game. Mm-hmm. And if the battery died, all you all you did was start over. Mm-hmm. That's it. And they were taking double A batteries. Anyway, so point being is my brother-in-law had a crate and he had a crate of X-Men comics. And so I only just remembered this other memory like a little while back. I was talking to somebody about comic book stores, but I remember he used to have these plastic bags and all of his guy friends this is when I learned I didn't want to skateboard. They would let me like go and be like the kid's sister mm-hmm. with them. And we go to the comic book shop next to the college. And I wasn't even tall enough to like really look at the comics, right? right. Like you're talking about like I'm I'm four or five <laughs> and right. these are made for six foot guys, right? Like it's 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 comic book stores weren't made. No for little girls and they would get the books and they would have their little plastic bags and we'd leave. And then I just, I didn't know what was going on. And then I got introduced to the X-Men animated series and I recognized the characters. But what I also didn't realize is that how long they had existed. Right. No clue. And then I kept getting into the X-Men. I used to bowl after school um, in a bowling league. Mm-hmm. This is really, really, this is how I really like it stuck with me. So about the age of like 10, bowling in a bowling league, the X-Men the Konami arcade game. game was in there. And I was like, no, I'm playing Storm. Me. I mean, her powers were dope, man. She just sat there and levitated and threw things at people. Like, it was great. It's good stuff. So it was that, and it just kept kind of, you know, spiraling. And I was lucky enough, like, this is within years of the next X-Men movie coming right. out. And so you just continue being a fan. Now, Darwin, on the other hand, did not happen for a very long time. I was doing a, a spot with Kara Mahorn for Sci-Fi Wire uh, at the time. R.I.P., right. Yeah. R.I.P. Sci-Fi Wire. I mean, it's still there in writing. But like, but, you know, but there's. Mm, mm. Yeah, you, you get what yeah. I'm saying. So um, so she brought me in to do uh, Who Won the Week segment. And she was like, yo, like, talk to me about underrated characters. And I had heard of Darwin before. This is after the movie came out. I thought it was shady that the, the whole movie went into a trope. And then I wanted to learn more about the character. The trope of like the black guy being the one who dies. First. Right. Right. Not just first. I think he's the only one who dies. If you think oh, about it, I don't think anybody think else dies in that movie. We got singed wings. Nope, I think you're right. <laughs> I think he is the only one who actually dies, dies. And even as someone who didn't care about the character. Shady. Yeah, well, especially in a movie that, I mean, we'll get into that movie, but the, a movie that leans so hard into we're setting it in the 60s and using a civil rights analogy, the fact that they killed but a black guy kill and the black the girl black. turns evil. Ding, 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 ding. It's a weird film. So It's a weird movie. Yeah. So And it doesn't mean I don't watch it periodically. It's I don't, but movie. I love that for you. Um, I watch a lot of bad films. It's part of the fault in my stars. I represent Bill Corbett. I'm not like opposed to a bad movie moment. <laughs> So, so I, so we go through this and we talk about underrated characters and, you know, I had realized after that movie, it's like Darwin wasn't supposed to die. What is this? His whole power is that he can't die. He's not supposed to die. And so, and I was like, I don't care. Also the treatment and I'm just, I'm, we, I'm going to go on this tangent later. 
I have a love for the Hellfire Club and the treatment of the Hellfire Club is in that atrocious. movie. Because you because somebody was trying to argue me last night that the Hellfire Club had been in the X Men movies, and I was like, yeah, but not no. really. Like, don't. Kevin like, Spacey come. was in this like, movie, and like was, a woman in white lingerie gave him a beer. That's not the Hellfire Club. What that was was not the Hellfire Club. I feel Club. for don't January come, Jones don't come at me. because I think January Jones is actually good casting for Emma Frost, but the script was so atrocious for the character that she didn't get to do shit between the costume and the script. It's like how Rose Byrne is actually great casting for Moira McTaggart, but the movie sucks. Moira McTaggart. And the thing about it is, it is one of the best Fox X-Men movies. So when I say the movie sucks, understand that I am grading on a curve. Somebody was also trying to like uh, argue me Dark Phoenix, but we're going to oh, go on the yeah, if no, I say those we words. Right. Anyway, don't. So anyway, I, Darwin, he of course has to come in later because he's not invented until 2005 in Deadly Genesis. Right. So his first appearance is X-Men Deadly Genesis number two. And he's got this tragic, what you don't learn about him in the movie because right. they didn't make a complete complex character because no. he didn't live long enough, um, is that he's actually... He's such a dear hearted soul. And I think mm -hmm. one of the faults in Darwin stars is that he's a people pleaser and he's the ever evolving boy. So like for those who like don't like, so I kind of fell in love with him because of his powers. And honestly, so the first time we had that conversation, I had seen the movie, I had dug into Darwin, but my first exposure to Darwin was World War Hulk. Mm -hmm. And if anybody knows me, they know how much I love Greg Pak period and how amazing greg pack is at world building and like this whole stuff he's done with planet hawk and world war hawk and there's this moment and this is a moment when i knew the right person had just never had darwin in their hands mm -hmm. so there's this moment in this panel where darwin is literally sucking up all of the gamma radiation to save everybody and then vanishes why does he vanish he vanishes to save himself automatically without meaning to yeah right so the the, the so the, the thing about darwin's powers for those who aren't familiar is that he's got i believe it is called reactive evolution reactive adaptation i think yeah yeah he's the ever evolving boy and professor x actually says what you just said which is reactive adaptation Basically, Moira McTaggart has them. He's like seeing him in fire and he goes, this boy has reactive adaptation. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> and I was like, OK, that that's a thing now. What's interesting about it is that it's actually a power that they had tried before. Claremont has a character called Lifeguard in Extreme X-Men who has the same power. The power essentially is whatever ability you need to suddenly have to prevent yourself from dying, you have. It is the ultimate evolutionary survival mechanism. Yep. Lifeguard could only do it in the service of protecting other people. So that was like her sort of And Darwin gimmick. can only do it in service of protecting himself. himself. And until, I mean, maybe 10, 15 years after the character was created, he could finally control yeah. it. But like this is after like absorbing Hella's powers. I don't think he could control it until literally last week. That sounds better. Yeah. No. Because everyone was like, oh, Darwin can control yeah, no. his power now. Yeah, and like, I was like, that's, it's about time. Yeah, 15 it? years. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. This is 15 yeah. years. That's about right. Mm -hmm. um. And for some reason, I think Darwin was accepted more readily than Lifeguard was. I think Lifeguard fell into, in part because she was a female character. I think a lot of people mm. were 
you know, she got the Mary Sue thing. But they're both tropey. They are both very tropey. She also turned out to be a Shi'ar princess, which I think was the moment it became too much for people. But yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you take it a step too far. That's just very Claremont, though. Like, you got to allow is. Chris I mean, to let big drama. women be retconned big into drama. princesses. Like, he loves shit like that. You just got to allow it sometimes. Big drama. Yeah. I, that's why we love Claremont. Exactly. Um, but I think the reason why I ended up loving Darwin, though, because I want to I want to like be very clear. I'm the type of person that, yeah, your powers are cool. I guess powers are, are, are dope in the hands of the right people, which finally has happened. Mm-hmm. His backstory makes his powers make sense. Yes. And I will I will say why. So, you know, he grows up. His mom's African-American. His dad skips out because like, I don't know, because if anybody's seen Dor- Darwin and honestly, my favorite rendition of Darwin is the when he gets Hella's power and he becomes the harbinger mm-hmm. of death. And like he's in like the whole Hella type costume because he he's he's there because he fe- he seems fully formed. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure there is some psychological qualm that I have about the well, fact he, looks that he never fetal. seems. Yeah, he never seems like he's a whole person. He also has that problem that a lot of black characters have where his skin is not brown. And that's probably why I also like the Harbinger a lot because his skin is like, as you get further and further into his development as a character in the books, he does eventually get there. But I will honestly say, you know, the fact that his mom resents him and is upset, the fact that the dad skips town, the fact that she's like, oh, you're going to take him to a boarding school? Great. Please get a, will you pay for him to go to this boarding school? Great. Bye. Bye. Even after he saves her life from a house fire, when she falls asleep, becoming a a chain smoker, you know, all of these things happen. And then, of course, when the report comes out, it's she calls him a mutie, which is like, oh, it's heart wrenching. And so when you think about his powers and this idea of he is a people pleaser, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it even says it in the story, in the origin story of him. He's like, he only did good on that test so that he can make his mother smile yes. because he just wants to make his mother happy, right? And that's also like, you know, that comes back to bite him on the ass again when his dad shows up. Later in X-Factor, yeah. Right, in X-Factor and hires X-Factor investigations to find him. Uh, obviously, his dad is like the worst of the worst. Yeah, it's like, I feel so bad about abandoning my family. And then it turns out, of course, no, my it's son like, got famous as a science you. experiment that I'm trying to sell him for money. Yeah. <laughs> but let me sell you. Um, <laughs> and it's it's one of those things that if you look at his powers, though, like he is a really gentle soul. He does have this really weird background. I do think there are points where he does get harder. And obviously that evolution makes sense after absorbing Hella's powers yeah. and still kind of being the the even like because the powers linger right? right and so you get kind of a little bit of an evolution with him right like he has this like he goes and tries to cross he like crosses a country tries to commit a murder has a one night stand with Monet who he kind of I mean I guess the kids call it simping yeah do you buy Monet being into that because I don't but I have that issue with Monet throughout X Factor I mean but Monet is a very like that's a whole nother conversation like I I really need to delve much deeper into the psychology of Monet (laughs) and her entire family tune in next month for an episode on Monet's Sun Croix 
I feel like PAD always has Monet hooking up with guys where I'm just like, Monet would not find this guy attractive. Yeah. Madrox, I bought it because it's like, she doesn't know him that well yet. And he's good looking. Like, once you get to know Jamie Madrox, you realize that you should not date him. I mean, this is the story of most of our lives. <laughs> but I, I say all that to say, like, I really, really fell in love with this idea of this character. One, because no one's ever really written the full potential. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, not until really recently. Right? right. I feel like we started really touching on the full potential of allowing Darwin to shine in this whole thing going into the vault with Wolverine and sync. I like the fact that he's allowed to be a full character. Mm -hmm. And I was always like this mutant who literally just learns alien languages by looking at them because he can, can breathe outside in space. Like the man suddenly could breathe in space and his bones got more dense so that he could survive. Theoretically, he's immortal. Theoretically. The man singed his consciousness on to Vulcan to exist and somehow managed to give him Petra and Sway's powers because he like had their imprints in his energy matrix and and then rebuilt his entire molecule by molecule yeah there's a lot going on with this one this is why honestly to go back to first class for just a moment I defended when that first happened I was like okay the black eye dying first is a bad trope and they should have known better than to play into that however I was like, he'll be back in the second movie, clearly, because this is what happens to him in the comics is he gets blown up and then he reintegrates. No, just never comes back. Fascinating choice, along with many other fascinating choices in the Fox X-Men franchise. My problem with that entire scene, let's ha- let's just oh, have a conversation. It sucks. Let's just go there. That entire scene, let's not even talk about pacing. Let's not even talk about dialogue. Let's not talk about the fact that the X-Men you choose to be in there. Yeah, because you, you just took random X Men out of random. Anybody decades. you hadn't used yet, because you decided you right. didn't want to do a real reboot, because you wanted to keep Hugh Jackman. And here, oh, Hugh Jackman. That's the only reason they didn't do a real reboot. And and here's the thing, I get it for those X Men fans who realize that the Darwin situation is technically a retcon, and that technically, like it's it like like I get like I get that Darwin is further back in X Men canon. Sure, but I hate than, that, so I'd rather ignore yeah. it. <laughs> well, and 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 like I just I just want to be clear that I understand that he is being placed on Krakoa. Like I get like I just I just want everybody to get that. But no, yeah, like I I hear you, but but no, like and and I think my greatest qualm with all of that scene is like Darwin could have been the one that saved them all yes that was Darwin's moment as an X-Men yep to shine yep because here's the thing about Darwin's powers theoretically in the beginning of his mutant journey he doesn't control it he doesn't understand why his body is doing what it's doing right. his body should have literally just done whatever it took to save him and everyone around him yeah formed some kind of plasma shell that blocks the energy or whatever that's a missed opportunity he could finally have taken power and he didn't even have he didn't even have to his body should have done it involuntarily done it his powers up until a certain point were completely involuntary that's the other thing they got wrong with with him because didn't he say something like watch this 
And like he does something. He puts his head in a tank and grows gills, which he does do in the comics sometimes. Like, but it happens automatically. I mean, he he grows gills like when he's in water. Yeah. Or he, he can see when it's So he says, dark, watch this like, and puts his head in the water. I So it was like reasonable, yeah. but I don't know. Point is, it's a particularly weird choice because, as I said, like, and this is something I've picked apart on this podcast before, but the very retroactive thing that Stan Lee liked to do, where he would claim that the 60s X Men was a civil rights metaphor, which is just not true if you read the 60s X Men stories, certainly not the ones that Lee and Kirby wrote. The movie First Class leans into that really, really hard. Like the Xavier as MLK, Magneto as Malcolm X thing that is totally retroactively placed upon those characters. And yet has two black characters in it, one of whom it makes a stripper, which I don't have a problem with strippers. No, I have no problem. But I think making the one black girl a stripper was a weird choice, much like I think having Darwin be the one character to die is a weird choice. Having her betray the team is a weird choice. There are a lot of weird choices. Well, and that, that comes from something that I will really shout out. Like, I just did a, um, an essay for Marvel's Voices. I was the editor. I wasn't the writer. Um, with Christine Den, who works at Marvel. And, it, and the beginning of the article talks about a concept of narrative scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that a lot of folks really need to like just explore right because what you're really saying there and i i agree fully is that this idea where when there are only two right or and that's why people get such a like uh, no offense to halle berry that is why she gets such a hard role Mm -hmm. because she is storm right and storm's it baby one is it boo is it boo and at this point darwin and correct me if I'm wrong, is the first cisgender black male to appear as a mutant on the good side in an X-Men movie. I believe that's correct. And I will leave that there. And then you killed him off without us getting any of his actual backstory? So that Havoc could have a sad feeling about it. Like, there's just something very... That whole, that whole mm, movie. Also, also, if you were like, if you're a true comic book fan, the fact that Havoc is upset and then Havoc is the brother. Anyway. Nope. Well, the fact nope. that Havoc is like 30 years older than Cyclops in the movie continuity is a real issue. Right. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, there's like three different Emma Frost. So we just shouldn't think too deeply about those movies because they're over. No. Thank God, finally. And we just don't have to worry about them anymore. Yeah, I still haven't watched the end of Dark Phoenix, and you can at me on that. Yeah, I just I've tried like six. That's times. a bad movie. Like, it's just really hard. Um, and I and I say that I and I love a good amount of the cast. Me of that too. Movie. Like I've interviewed Ty Fossey. I think you know even Alexander Ship. Like let's be real, she was hired to be a younger Halle. Yeah, Bear, like to to follow the continuity of being. Halle Berry's younger storm self Mm -hmm. and I think she really like she did what she could with what was written yeah I feel like the issues people had with her are mostly issues with what was baked into the earlier version of the character which is that Halle Berry's storm was never as assertive as we wanted storm to be and they cast a mixed race actress you know so the colorism issue is baked into the very first movie and if you're casting based on we want a young Halle Berry it's going to perpetuate that. Well, and I think even the more interesting thing is, it's not even that Halle Berry is mixed race. It is that Halle Berry doesn't look like Storm. Right. Period. She just doesn't. Like, just, she doesn't. 
it's it's not what we grew up with. It's I mean, and 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 not to get knock off into like another franchise, but it's like one of the reasons I honestly think while the Green Lantern movie was not great, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't the Green Lantern everybody had grown up with in animation, and they made a very distinct decision to go with the comic book yeah. Green Lantern instead of going with John Stewart, who everybody knew from the cartoon. And that's and that's what people wanted to see, right? And so when you have these years, that's a DC Comics problem generally, like the obsession with bringing back the version from the '60s that the current audience is not connected to, the Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, and they managed to bring yeah. it back around with Barry by doing that TV show. But the TV show version of Barry is just Wally West. This is not a DC Comics podcast, but like we could get in the weeds. Oh, but like they made him yeah. the funny jokester guy, like which honestly, I hate to say it. We all like more. Yeah. And like everybody liked Wally West more. It's just a fact, except for like Jeff Johns. Like I'm just, you know, I I don't know what to tell you. Or like, really, I love Vic Sage, but you're going to bring Vic Sage back after Greg Rucker wrote that whole arc for Renee Montoya. That's insane. I'm sorry. It's just insane. I love Renee Montoya. Renee's my favorite DC character. Full stop. My favorite DC character is Harley Quinn. And that's a whole. That's a whole other story of characters derailed by branding. Right. Let me tell you how I love, (laughs) love Amanda Connor and her ability to visualize and draw with with her husband's scripts. Such a beautiful world for Harley Quinn. Sure. But anyway, back to Darwin. Back to Darwin. Um, This is the thing about Darwin, though, right, is that I feel like Darwin's entire publication history is every now and then a writer says, and now back to Darwin. But he's never had, as you said, the opportunity to really be a star. Which sucks because he gets he gets a good origin story. So I want to talk about this. This is a backup in Deadly Genesis. And as I've said, I hate Deadly Genesis, yeah. but the backup stories that are the origins oh, of Petra, end, Sway, and the, Darwin yeah. are very good. Oh, so that's actually, honestly, the strongest part about, in my personal opinion, my humble opinion, the way they did the architecture on those books with the backstory at the end. I love a backup. Allowing the retcon to exist without having to be forced in the present day story Mm -hmm. until it was time was really well done. And like, honestly, like kudos to that entire editing team. Yeah, I just don't like the story, but I think that it's if you're going to do this, Professor Xavier did something. Yeah, that sucked. They killed Banshee. That sucked. Like, I was not ready for that. I think Pete Woods. And honestly, covers were done by like Mark Silvestri did some yeah. covers that included Darwin uh, movie like throughout everything. Like the co- the covers were gorgeous. The backstory, the panels were beautiful. The whole backstory like, is really good. When he tries to kill himself because his mother has rejected him, no matter even after all the things that he's done, and the moment he fully understands the curse of his power is when he tries to jump off a building and he bounces because his power won't yep. allow him to die. That is an incredible. That is the kind of shit. I mean, like I don't like Brubaker's X Men, but I love Gotham Central, which is Brubaker and Rucka. Brubaker has the power to give you these moments of pathos that really are extraordinary. Right. Well, and, and, and I, and I, this, I think what you hit on exactly, it is why I like the character and kind of like bringing it full circle is this idea that his powers may never have been written correctly and he may not have gotten a well-formed out future until recently, but his past was very well articulated 
and his behaviors made sense, right? Mm -hmm. So when he, like him going into, him running away, while I don't like it, he still doesn't have control over his powers at that point, right? right? In, In World War Hulk, he still doesn't have control of his powers. And, you know, he does also have this people pleasing situation and he still hasn't like, how do you heal from the fact that your mom was like, no, but I reject you, kid. Bye. Bye now. I don't want you. I still don't want you. And I will never want you. And now I really, really, really don't want yeah. you. I think it's interesting. I also really love that it was chosen for Darwin to get Hela's powers. Because mm-hmm. like anybody who knows how like comic book teams are put up, like you basically like sit there and you it's like dodgeball. Right. It's like, all right. So we know where this story is going to go whose powers work. And I was actually, I was actually talking to um, a comic book writer yesterday and we were talking about a scene that I really loved in one of her books. And and there's no spoilers uh, about who it was and what it was, but she realized she had picked two long distance super powered heroes to put in this scene. And she's like, Oh no shit. They could get out of this. How do I, how do I make, how do I make this happen in a cabin? Ah, and so you kind of work around that but like this is really what happens like you have you sit there and you're like okay we're picking this one we're picking this one this is what we're bringing together this is what what's situation happening. could we put them in where their powers serve the story and also and who don't works break in this it. situation right. yes that's one yes. thing that claremont did really cleverly with the initial team of new mutants all of those characters have a very situational power. It's like, I've said this before on the podcast, Cannonball can shoot real fast in one direction. Sunspot is really strong, but not invulnerable. Mirage and Karma are telepaths, but only kind of. They have a specific power. They can't do everything. Rain could turn into a dog. Useful sometimes, not useful other times. You know, like... I really love Rain so oh, much. I don't, but it's fine. I mean, listen, I will say, I love Rain until 1989, and then it's a no-go for me with Rain until literally 2019. She had a tough 20 years there. 30 years she's, almost. Well, and I think that's also the thing about the X-Men, right? Like, I think you kind of label that out, and this is something Chris has been very clear about, is like... And I talked to somebody else this other day about Superman. Mm-hmm another legacy writer and he was you know he was just saying superman is boring until you make him vulnerable right which is why when superman falls in love with lois lane suddenly there's superman has kids suddenly there's a selfishness there's a choice right there's there's he's now suddenly not a full boy scout because now he has to choose between his family and righteousness or whatever right right and that's one of the reasons why people do like Batman, right? Yeah. Like Batman isn't perfect. I'm not a fan of Batman. I am a fan of Jim Gordon. I like a good Boy Scout that's got flaws. I love a really flawed character with flaws. I love a. Re- I mean, Renee Montoya is a hard drinking, emotionally volatile, bad girlfriend who is violent and you know, etc. However, she will always do the right thing in the end, right? So, like, that's the that's that's how I feel about Harley Quinn. That is a whole other podcast that maybe maybe we'll do a bonus someday and we can talk about. Maybe we do a but but but. But I like I love Ivy. I mean, like I'm an Ivy person for oh, sure. I, I Ivy because she's got a moral code. Ivy, I, the, the people just always forget, and she's again never been done right in the movies. Ivy has a moral code. Uma Thurman, I think that movie is oh, not she good, was, but she's great. But she was great. Well, it's like Rebecca Romaine. Yeah, it's like Rebecca Romaine. It's like we're doing this kind of correctly, but it's surrounded by bullshit. You know what I mean? Because Rebecca Romaine as Mystique? Kills it. Oh, literally. Kills it. 
what I love about Darwin is that his backstory was fully formed that someone went, make it make sense that w- this is going to be his personality and this is where we're going to put this kid and then make it make sense even in how his powers manifest. Because like maybe if he grew up in a, in a family where he was always loved. Maybe it would have manifested differently. would have been different. Right. It would have manifested differently. It wouldn't have been, I'm doing this to survive a harsh environment because that's what I grew up in. There's always a chicken and egg question with mutant powers. Like sometimes it's clear that, for example, Lorna, once it turned out she was Magneto's daughter, okay, that's the powers you're going to get. Sometimes that's what happens. Other times, like Ilyana has the power to control the stepping discs of Limbo. Is that what her mutation always would have been? Or is that a mutation she developed because she was stuck in limbo and needed to get out? Well, it's the same thing with Cloak, right? Yes. Like Cloak and Dagger. Well, except right? Cloak and like, Dagger, it's messed up because like whether or not they're actually mutants has always been like a big well, question mark. So it's like... Well, the, the, the whole theory in the original yes, Cloak in the, and Dagger in the original comic, yeah. their mutant powers were activated because of them being pushed all of these drugs in their system. So they were kidnapped and experimented on in New York after getting off a bus. And and it this you got to remember, like the writer was like fighting the whole war on drugs at this point in time. The writer was very Catholic. I was just talking to Steph Williams about this on Twitter. Like Cloak and Dagger has aged weird. Cloak and Dagger. Well, Cloak and, so D- Cloak and Dagger has actually aged, in my personal opinion, well. And Cloak and Dagger, you have to remember, has a 616 origins and they have a 6 1610 origin. So they've got two different majorly, majorly, vastly different origin stories. And then they've got the freeform Marvel's Cloak and Dagger origin story. I meant the original Cloak and Dagger comic, I think, has aged well. That weird. original Cloak and Dagger comic did not age well. Because it and is war on it drugs. Was a product, it, was a, it was a product of its time. What Steph was talking about is that, like, a lot of black characters, particularly introduced at that time, are respectability politics characters, where it's like, here we are in a black neighborhood to clean it up, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And I also think, you know, we and I I like the way and honestly, a lot of people don't give a lot of credit to Joe Pekaski for this. But in the show... So basically, for those who don't know Cloak and Dagger, we're just going to go on this tangent because now we, we can't leave you wanting. This is a tangential podcast and so we can do it. We can yeah, do that. Yeah, we're just going to go on this tangent. So basically, Cloak and Dagger. So Cloak, friend, get, friend gets shot. Not brother. For those who've watched the TV show. Friend gets shot. Cloak has, Ty has a stutter. Mm-hmm. He gets on the bus. He runs away. He has no money. He sees Tandy. Tandy's his ballerina, I believe from Ohio. Somebody's going to correct me, but I believe they're both runaways is the thing. They're both runaways. She gets on the bus in a very if you if for those who love 80s bad movies in a very fast forward, which is a movie where a bunch of kids Mm -hmm. in Ohio get on a bus to run away to be dancers. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies anyway. So they see each other in a very Monica Rambeau Spider-Man type way in New York (laughs) getting off buses. Ty is about to like rip the bag from Tandy and 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 rob her until she gets into a situation they both get kidnapped they get shot up with this drug all the other kids die it is theorized and i think it is canon that the drug awoke their latent mutant gene that was canon until very recently because of the movie rights issues i think they were just like oops cloak and dagger aren't mutants after all they like pulled a squirrel well, girl on and, it well that was well that was in the tv show so in the tv show and there's a whole lot of stuff in the tv and so they retconned it back to the comics when they came out with the new Camus. Like Pietro and Wanda, where it was like, suddenly you're not mutants anymore. It was that kind of thing, right? 
They were like Polaris. They were mutants whose powers were latent and were activated by an external source because Polaris gets hers when she gets plugged in a machine. It was that kind of thing. But in this case scenario, going back to the question at hand, we don't know what their mutant powers eventually would have grown up into being because they were still teenagers. It could have been something completely different if they weren't together, if it wasn't done by drugs. And so this kind of comes back to the whole point, like would Darwin's powers have been different if his whole life wasn't about pleasing the impossible to please mother. Exactly. Because that, that so, and, and, and this brings me back full circle to what I'm saying is like, I love, even though I may not necessarily like the concept, I love when someone can pull off. That's why this character makes sense Mm -hmm. because I wrote him that way. Because it's not a, Oh, we're just going to make this happen in, in issue five. When you go back to his backstory, his backstory, if you study it, his behaviors make sense. Mm-hmm. Now, the behavior of running away in World War Hulk, in my personal opinion, it is debatable. Well, on one hand, somebody's like, he did it to survive. Right. I, I always read it as he didn't do it on purpose. No, yeah, because he didn't do it. In, you know, his body did it to him because his body was like, we can't do anymore. You've got to go. Go. You will die unless you leave. Right. You know, for me, that was a writer's choice, right? And I think there was a writer's choice for many different reasons in world building, and it's neither right nor wrong. I don't like it. That doesn't make it wrong. Right. But I think to me, it makes it very interesting the way the writers then are able to evolve him once he takes on Hella's powers, mm-hmm. right? And the way he's able to, you know, the fact that he doesn't end up killing Tear. Yeah tear and 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 he ends up going well since i didn't stop the thing i was supposed to stop let me join the good guys so we can save people like that's a darwin like it makes darwin makes sense to me now has he always been given the shine he should get no yeah and i think there's a couple reasons for that when evan narcisse and i were talking about dazzler a couple weeks ago evan pointed out that it's a great episode if you haven't heard it. I really was happy with it. We just talk about dance music for like four hours. <laughs> the fact that, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure y'all talked about the fact that... I, that she was I supposed to be black? I remember this coming up, that she's supposed to be black. Yeah, that was like half the episode. Which is also funny because there's a picture of me getting my face painted like Dazzler. And I didn't know that at the time. We ultimately like landed in a place of the character actually makes more sense as a white woman because it makes her not make sense. Like because it makes the the like out of time disco queen like even funnier because there never was like an actual white disco queen. it's a funny episode this this is makes me think about the stand where the dude who was the the artist who was a musician mm-hmm. in the original book yeah. was not black but he was singing black music as his mother described it we compared her to like nelly furtado or tina marie where it's like a white woman who's really in the black music world and like knows what she's doing but is still the white girl on the face of the record I'm going to shout out Estero because Estero was Nelly Furtado before Nelly Furtado was Nelly Furtado. And she is, if you've not heard her, she is a brilliant musician from Canada. Oh, Nelly Furtado working with black songwriters, working with black musicians. She put on the track. It's like a different energy than Elvis. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a different. Oh, Elvis. 
I do think that casting Elvis's granddaughter as the white girl in Zola is the most brilliant casting of all time. Like, she's a great actress in her own right, but that is a genius bit of casting that the white girl in Zola is Elvis's granddaughter. I did not know that. Riley Keough, she's Lisa Marie's daughter. Yeah. And now I got to go watch that movie. It's going to be good. I've heard great things about it. Great. So, circling back, I agree. I like when... I don't think mutant powers need to have a personality explanation, but I like when they dovetail. Like we talked in the Kate Pride episode that I did with Stephanie Burt about how Kitty, as she's called when she's young, has a really ambivalent relationship to her body. And so her crisis becoming that she needs to be solid, that she needs to be tangible and have a body. And if she's not focusing, she's going to discorporate or become a ghost. It really resonates and for Stephanie, as a trans woman, it resonated on another metaphoric level. But just within the story, it resonates very specifically as like her power says something about the character. What you said about the backup, and that's, of course, we first see Darwin in the backup because we get the backup yep. stories before we know the significance of the characters in Deadly Genesis. Oh, yeah. And the the breadcrumbs. The structure of it is very well done. I just don't like the story. But I reread that for the Moira McTaggart episode, the whole Deadly Genesis story, because that's my biggest problem with Deadly Genesis is the way it handles Moira. Does it handle Moira? That's precisely the problem, right? mm, And I'm excited to see how Hickman fixes it, because I'm sure he has a plan, because you got to fix it. Oh, you can tell the love that Hickman has for Moira McTaggart is just... Next level. Yeah. He has done more for that character than anyone but Claremont ever has. I lost my last ever loving mind. In House of X 2? Lost it. I, lo- I, I lost it. I had to it. walk around the block. Like, I was... I like, she's a what? She excuse me? Right. She's... Uh, excuse me? Yeah. But I was going to say, the other character I think that that is done really brilliantly with, and it is one of the reasons why it's seen as an all-time great run on any character, is what Grant Morrison does with Emma Frost. In New X-Men, we get to know Emma in a very specific way. Grant has a very specific characterization of Emma Frost. It's all about like feminine gender performance. It's all about sort of this hard exterior, which Grant literalizes with the diamond form. But also, we come to understand her sense of humor. You see her as a a whole person. We've only seen her interacting with kids, right? Because it was Gen Mm -hmm. X, she was the teacher. And she and Banshee had their banter, but it was never that deep. Yeah. In the 80s, we mostly saw her interacting with the new mutants, interacting with Kitty. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, she's among peers, or actually, I think she's a little older than them. We ignore the Carl Bowler's origin story because it doesn't make sense. But she's with Jean and Scott and those people. What Morrison then does, and no one had done this before, is give her a real deep backstory. Like, we had met the sisters in Gen X who were retconned in. Well, it's like, it's like life death, right? It's yes. Like, it's when you, it's, and, 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 and literally, I, like, that's all I can think about. Like, when you talk about that, like, yes, Greg Pak had a great run on Storm. So I don't want to, I don't want to leave that out. It was way further in the future. But life death is that moment where you're like, oh, Storm's a whole person. Right. I mean, and Claremont did this with Storm. Claremont was given oh. Storm and then spent 15 years explaining Storm to you as a person. And Morrison does that with Emma and waits until New X-Men 139, the issue, the Phil Jimenez drawn issue that's so beautiful, where Jean breaks into her head. I'm now just sitting here looking at one of these panels from Life, Death, and just like losing my mind. And we see 
why Emma is the person that she is. Yes, because because they're whole people. They're not just their powers. And that is the power of the Marvel Universe. And that is why people relate to the X-Men. Specifically. The way they relate yes. to the X-Men. Yes, the X-Men are special. They just are. And that's not to say that whatever comic fandom you love best is not great. I'm not saying that it's a qualitative measure, but there is a specific way that the X-Men resonate with people. And that's been the really interesting part of doing this podcast from 1975 on well yeah i mean that's when it gets good i think that there's i'm sorry are we are you about to, are you about to argue about 1960 i think the late 60s stuff is pretty good once lorna and alex come in i think it all is right, pretty good all right no i mean when when someone else takes over yeah but the the, the yes. stan and jack x-men is terrible that's why they only do like 13 issues of it and then they're done because it's not good well, uh, we'll leave it there the thing is the initial concept for the X-Men were that we have G-Men and they were written very much like a police force. They were written like a force of, because the X-Men are basically G-Men and it's like this concept, but they didn't really know what to do with it yet, right? Yeah. There wasn't a huge investment in their personal life the way when Claremont. Well, also the metaphor is not there yet. No. This is why I bring up the first class thing and how it's retroactive. It's Claremont who adds that metaphor to the X-Men, which is why what you're saying is from 1975 on, it becomes a personal story for anyone who's ever been a person of color, a woman, a gay person, a trans person, anybody, or literally anyone who's ever felt marginalized in some way, even if they are a cishet white man. Even if Claremont didn't intend it, because he didn't. I have had a long conversation. He's like, yes, there is a metaphor about black and white. And there is a metaphor about race. He was very clear. Yeah. And that came out in a very stark way in God Loves Man Kills, right? But he will tell you he is excited that it has taken and has evolved into LGBTQIA. It's yeah. taken and involved into all these other places of disability. He was like, I was just trying to tell a good story and whole people. And that's the beauty of it. When you try to tell a good story that's relatable, you create real people. The thing about the 60s story, and I've said this on the podcast, and what you said about a police force is really interesting, is here's how I perceive the metaphor in the 60s X-Men, speaking as a white Jewish person. And the creators were white Jewish men. Yes. Yeah, right? So there is this very specific mentality in comics at that time, which is every Jewish person changed their name to something Anglo. Stanley Lieber and Jacob Kurtzberg became Stanley and Jack Kirby. You never have a Jewish character on the page. The first Jewish hero at Marvel Comics is Kitty Pride. period. The first one to be acknowledged as Jewish on page. As it, Okay, as I was like... The thing is not Jewish. Bobby. Bobby Drake Bobby is not is. Jewish until 1984 in his miniseries okay, by J.M. And that's why I was like, I took a step back and I was like, canonically, he's earlier, but it's not acknowledged. The same way where Bobby's not acknowledged that he's is gay, which is gay also something that's Bindis. first really pushed in in the DiMatteis miniseries in 1984, actually. Tony Oliveira and I did an episode on that that's that I'm quite pleased with where we dig into how many writers tried to out Iceman for 30 years before they let Bendis do it. But even the thing who Jack Kirby used to draw on his Hanukkah cards is not established on the page as Jewish until the early aughts. 
And Magneto, who yeah. Claremont implied heavily was Jewish, but never explicitly said it, is not stated to be Jewish until Greg Pak does in Magneto Testament in 2008. What, was it, it, was, it was Slot's run that did the thing as Jewish, right? I don't Are remember who did it, it, but it's I'm definitely sure. like 50 years later. So what I'm saying is there's there was this idea of we need to hide, we need to pass as regular white people, we need to avoid the Holocaust. I mean, you know, it was very fresh in everyone's mind, right? Like genocide. So the X-Men in the 60s are a bunch of Jewish kids, metaphorically. They're a bunch of kids in the suburbs. I grew up in Westchester. Like literally the school would be around the corner from me. I love it. In the 60s, if you are a Jewish kid in that town, you're trying to blend in. And to me, that's what the X-Men are. And the policing thing is an interesting point because the whole thing that the X-Men do is respectability politics, right? Like, that's why Krakoa has become an interesting new direction because the whole idea of the X-Men is assimilationist, is let's appease the humans, let's create sort of this peace. And the way that it starts in the 60s is literally we need to blend in and we need to make sure any evil mutants are kept under control because that would be bad for the Jews. Like, that's the vibe that I pick up from it. Which is very interesting because we could get into a large conversation because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Reza Eslam mm -hmm. and his book, Messiah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because that hits a really interesting tone about the retconning of the Bible in and of itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how after being in, after being captured, after so much volatility under the Holy Roman Empire and this, all of these uprisings and all of these re revolts and all of these moments of so much turmoil um, for the Jewish people that they retconned a lot of, as, as they yeah. moved to, a lot of people moved into Christianity, retconned a lot of the stuff written about Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, um, which is also very appropriate for Easter. Yeah, we are recording on Easter. We are recording on Easter. Yeah, so it's so it's very interesting to me because it, it it is it is something that does culturally ring true if if you know if you are a person like if you are a historian who looks at those things. That's the thing is like the X Men. I mean, the Sentinels and all of that are like very explicitly like it's important to remember how fresh the Holocaust was. <laughs> the Sentinels are the SS. <laughs> Well, there is something, you know, They're the, they are the Gestapo, essentially. Yeah. And then once Claremont takes over, Claremont, who was Jewish also, but was low key about it because his name was Chris Claremont. And he was raised as Catholic. Yeah. But he spent time on a kibitz when he was young. Like he he's culturally invested. It's not it's much like, honestly, Kitty Pride, who is a pretty secular Jew most of the time. She's not keeping kosher. She's not going to shul. And for a lot of American Jews, that is the deal right it's like a, it's a it's a cultural ethnicity more than it necessarily is always a religious Trend, devotion yep. right yep claremont has said like yeah there was a black and white thing that i was working with but with magneto and xavier i was really working with menachem begin and david ben gurion and like the different israeli movements at that time and things like so there's a lot of much more explicit jewish stuff there once Claremont was able to lean into it and was like, I mean, he didn't create Storm, but he made her the star. Here's Storm. She's a black woman. Here's Kitty. She's Jewish. They're talking about these issues. Mm, that panel, the shadiness that I still have as a woman with a mohawk is just like 
Storm was very nice to her because I'm going to tell you, had Kitty Pride come to me and asked me about why I changed my clothes and got a mohawk and got offended because I decided to change my wardrobe. Mm-mm, sis. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I talked about this in the Kate episode. I see it as Storm is the woman that Kate most wants to emulate. And so Storm suddenly establishing herself and asserting herself as a person who isn't the person that Kate wants to be is very, it freaks Kate out. And that's why Storm has to be like, I'm not your mother, which is literally what she says, which I think is great. She's like, I'm your friend, but like, I'm not your mother. You don't get to control what I do. You need to get over this right now. I just had a very weird response to a tweet. I posted one of the first panels of Life Death, which is Storm in a bed. And like yeah. the caption literally says, once upon a time, there's a woman who could fly. And someone goes, happy Easter. And I'm like, that's... Well, that's Life Death is a very Eastery story, if we're thinking about it, actually. Like, there's a lot of... Well, okay. All right. No, no. I'm going to let you have that one. Because, yeah. <laughs> there's some resurrection. I mean, the title alone, right? I mean, there's some resurrection. There's, there's some, some resurrection shit in there. There's some being yeah. in caves. You end up in the desert. Yep. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Fine. I will let you have it. <laughs> anyway, uh, back to Darwin. <laughs> the point of... The point of... The point is that we keep going on tangents because Darwin needs his own book and Darwin needs a good backstory and Darwin needs a good partner. Yeah, that the thing that I was going to say is to go way back to what I was saying before. When Evan Narcisse and I did the Dazzler episode, we talked about how characters need stewards in ongoing universes like this. And particularly black characters need stewards because a lot of the time they are introduced to much fanfare and then they disappear. You need someone who cares about Monica Rambeau to bring Monica Rambeau back because she doesn't get the same level of grandfathered in as an important character as a white woman like Carol Danvers does. You can knock Carol Danvers down a million times. She will eventually come back. Monica was not coming back after Grunewald wrote her out until somebody really wanted to bring her back, basically. It's like it was a couple of stages. It was like McDuffie did a story. Because McDuffie cared about Monica Rambeau. Warren Ellis uses her briefly in Next Wave because he was looking for an Avenger who was unappreciated, right? Ugh. Next Wave Agents of Hate is literally a masterpiece. I love that comic. You know, the Ellis stuff has gotten complicated. That one is hard for me to let go of. That comic is a masterpiece. It brought Monica back. You know, whether or not everyone likes her characterization. I, I have a lot. Yeah, I have a lot of feelings. I think within and, and I actually had this conversation the other day. I think within Agents of Hate. It makes sense. I think pulling it further into the larger canon of her personality based upon how she was established in the Stern run it's not even that she's in one issue. Like she's in the stern run for years. She's his main character in a lot of ways. And then Grunewald fired him and wrote her out. And the way she got written out. Okay. I can't talk about it. It's violent and fucked up and I don't like it. And we'll just leave it. And then she goes home. Okay. Anyway. It's not good. Anyway, this is, she's the only Avenger who I ever like give any page time on this podcast. Her and Carol, because Carol's so tied to the X-Men in so many ways, but. Well, and I, I really have to say like, even at the end of the day, like she has a heart of gold, right? Like she, and, and this is what I love about she and Storm getting page time is that they both. Well, they would be friends. Like it's like a good, I would love to see more of that. Yeah. Oh, all right. So anyway, Darwin. Anyway, 
But no, but so, but the thing is, you needed Ewing to then go, I love this character. Like, they need a steward. Darwin has never really had stewards. Brubaker created him and used him for a while. Then Peter David got the character. And the problem with being a character who gets sent to X Factor Investigations, which ran for a gazillion issues because people really loved it, is it was so cut off from the rest of the X-Men world that anyone who was there for a really long time needed a lot of work to be integrated back into the main cast of the X-Men. Monet is really the only one who got out unscathed because mm. a bunch of writers kind of reset her a little bit. Yeah. And were like, you know, it's the Monet you knew and loved in Generation X, but now she's roughly 23, 25. And they just moved on. But you have now, you'll notice, a lot of stories right now Mm-hmm. by conscientious writers like Vida Ayala and Leah Williams, and I think we're about to see it with Madrox and X-Corp with Teeny Howard, mm-hmm. they're taking these characters like Rain and like Siren, who were Oof. really just written into corners and finding a way to take them out of the corner and bring them back into the fold. I want, I want to interrupt and I, want to, I, and I hate to jump in. I want to be very clear about what you were saying. They were utilized as tools and devices for the story and not created as characters. I want to be very Correct. clear that they were a device in a story that was used to get someone out of a box they had written themselves into and therefore never fully developed into a character, which is why I like Claremont's run. Yeah. Because Claremont tried to never do that. And if he did, he left a string and he came back to it. Always. Except for the ones that he wasn't able to tie up because he had to leave. But yeah, he always tried to tie things up. I mean, and that didn't happen in the 90s. And that's the problem. So no. like, I, I want to be very clear what happened in the 90s because of the explosion. And you know this. Because of the explosion, it didn't happen in the 90s because there was just X-Men being thrown into teams. Right. And the teams needed people. And you can't use the same X-Men on every team because that X-Men is over there. Unless it's Wolverine. Then you can put him anywhere. <laughs> yes, because you cloned him. Someone went, why can't we have Wolverine everywhere? Well, why don't we clone him? Yeah. And then that all turned. It gave us Laura. It did. It gave us Gabby. It also gave us a bunch of other trouble. I think that the big problem with the way Peter David's X Factor kind of curdles at a certain point is that it is concerned with the characters of Madrox and Layla and not really concerned with anybody else and they all sort of become vehicles to serve the plot as opposed to people with exactly stuff going on i know i agree 100 percent. and darwin is a character who falls right into that yeah and i think he's the exception though because at least he gets a backstory that makes sense and that goes back to why i like him Mm-hmm. The problem is just that once you've given him like God powers, you don't give him a good future. The character is already someone who doesn't have a long history. It's not someone like Teresa or like Rain who goes back to the 80s. Eric Dane played Madrix. Why don't I remember this? In Last Stand, yeah. Why don't I remember this? It was hot, honestly, thinking about a million Eric Danes. I like McSteamy. I completely forgot. Weird casting. He was just a bad guy in Last Stand. It wasn't really recognizably him. It was just the power, the way the Fox movies always do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Once you've written Darwin into a weird corner, there aren't as many writers who are going to be invested in getting him out. 
like mm. Rain and Terry and Monet are characters who had a lot of fans because those characters had been so prominent in the 80s and 90s. In Monet's case, just the 90s. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Whereas you're not going to see a lot of people who are desperately keen to bring Darwin back into circulation when you're going to have to do work to explain whatever storyline. So one of the nice things, and Annalise Bissett talked about this when she came on the show, is that House of X gives us an opportunity to reset people a little bit. And it needed a reset. Like it, yeah, it it's a, a soft reboot. You don't need to explain why Cypher isn't an internet-addicted hermit in a shack anymore. It's just like, you know what? That storyline didn't serve the character. We're resetting a little bit. It's just a very soft reboot. And Rain and Darwin have both, I think, been reset a little bit in a soft way. Darwin, we haven't seen as much yet, but I think we will see more of him soon because the Vault storyline seems like it will have consequences. No. Yeah, right? I think this is probably a good time before we tangent yeah, again. Yeah, because we're going to tangent again. Yeah, to pause for the Cerebro character file on Armando Munoz, the ever-evolving Darwin. I will run you through his full publication history in order, and then we will come back for more with Angelique Rocher. We will talk about our favorite Darwin storylines and least favorite Darwin storylines, and then we will answer questions from listeners like you. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Armando Munoz, better known by his codename Darwin, is a character with a complicated place in the lore of the X-Men. Created by writer Ed Brubaker and artist Trevor Hairstein, he first appears in the 2005 event miniseries X-Men Deadly Genesis, which significantly retcons the history of the team and its mentor Charles Xavier. Revisiting 1975's iconic giant-size X-Men number one, Second Genesis, Deadly Genesis reveals that the giant-sized team was not the first group of mutants Xavier recruited to rescue the 60s X-Men from the clutches of the living island Krakoa. First, he went to his colleague and friend, Dr. Moira McTaggart, and enlisted the four students she had been fostering in her own way as non-combatants. Xavier used his telepathic powers to give the students, Darwin, Petra, Sway, and Kid Vulcan, a compressed crash course in superheroics, allowing them to experience months of training in the span of a few hours. The team arrived on Krakoa and was promptly slaughtered by the island, with Vulcan and Darwin secretly surviving due to the dying intervention of Petra and Sway. Xavier, ashamed of himself, erased all existence of the four students from the minds of everyone who knew them. Darwin first appears in a backup story in the second issue of Deadly Genesis, before his significance has been revealed. The backup relates his origin story. Armando Munoz is born to an African-American mother and Latino father, and by the age of four, his complete lack of hair and strangely elongated limbs have marked him as different. His father abandons the family, and his mother blames and despises him. Desperate for her affection, he scores abnormally high on an IQ test and is invited to an elite boarding school, but even this does not please her. Bullied relentlessly at school, he discovers his mutant power of reactive adaptation when his head is shoved into a toilet bowl and he sprouts gills to breathe. He fights back against the bullies, his fists spontaneously becoming hard as stone, but the incident goes without notice by school authorities. When his chain-smoking mother sparks a house fire while he's on break from school, Armando saves her life with the use of his mutant power. At the hospital, he undergoes tests and is christened Darwin, the Evolving Boy, after evolutionary scientist Charles Darwin. A report is published on him in a scientific journal, drawing much attention, but his mother is repulsed. She rejects him, refusing to believe she could have given birth to a mutant. Armando then attempts suicide by jumping off the roof of the boarding school, only to find that his mutation makes him lighter and softer to compensate. He cannot die. As he's grappling with this, he's told by the school psychiatrist that Dr. Moira McTaggart is interested in taking him in. Armando bonds with his new friends as one of Moira's so-called fosters. 
When the Krakoa mission goes pear-shaped, Petra and Sway manage to use their powers over the Earth and time to seal the team beneath the ground before they die. Armando's mutation transforms him into energy, and he absorbs the powers of the two girls before merging with the only other survivor, Gabriel Summers, codenamed Kid Vulcan. In the present, after Vulcan, no longer a kid, is awakened by the decimation and confronts the X-Men with the terrible truth of deadly Genesis, Rachel Summers manages to telepathically detect Armando and separate him from Vulcan. Vulcan departs for Shi'ar space, where he was born and once enslaved, to seek revenge on his former masters, while Armando's mutation begins reconstituting a physical form molecule by molecule in Hank McCoy's lab. This leads into Ed Brubaker's run on Uncanny X-Men, where a hand-picked team led by the now-disgraced Charles Xavier follows Vulcan into space in an attempt to prevent his vengeance on the Shi'ar. Armando is brought along because Xavier believes his friendship with Vulcan may be helpful, and it turns out his powers are extremely helpful as well. When Xavier is kidnapped by Shi'ar agents, Armando rescues him single-handedly. Recaptured, unfortunately, Armando is forced to bear witness to Vulcan's wedding to Deathbird, the much-loathed sister of Emperor Deken and the deposed Empress Lalandra. Don't worry about it. When the X-Men and the space pirates called the Starjammers attack the wedding ceremony, Vulcan traps Xavier inside the cosmic Macron crystal, and Armando is forced to enter it to rescue him. He then returns to Earth. Armando next appears in the miniseries World War Hulk X-Men by Christus Gage. Fighting the rampaging Hulk, Armando subconsciously evolves to begin absorbing gamma radiation. When the Hulk's sheer level of gamma energy begins overloading his system, Armando's power decides the best survival mechanism is to teleport away. He then makes a cameo appearance fighting alongside the X-Men in the 2007 franchise-wide event Messiah Complex. The character then moves to Peter David's X-Factor in 2008. Initially, he's searching for the missing Charles Xavier with a Skrull impersonating Longshot. Don't worry about it. But he's found by X-Factor Investigations after his father, Hector Munoz, hires them to track him down. Hector claims to regret abandoning his family, but he's actually attempting to sell Armando as a test subject to the mysterious Project Karma in exchange for a million dollars. The Project Karma agent shoots Hector in the head rather than paying him, leaving him non-communicative with severe brain damage. Armando confronts his father at the hospital and tells him to rot in hell. Armando becomes a member of the X-Factor team and joins his new friends, including Monet Sancroix, with whom he's immediately infatuated, in their various adventures until early 2011. After a battle with the Asgardian death goddess Hela temporarily causes his mutation to replicate her powers and transform him into an Asgardian god of death, he leaves the group to process this traumatic experience. While roaming in the desert, hallucinating, Armando experiences a series of visions and learns his teammate Rain Sinclair's son Tyr will bring about the end of the world by bringing Hell to Earth. He begins hunting the boy in an attempt to kill him and avert this future. But when he finally has the opportunity, he can't bring himself to do it, and instead joins up with X-Factor again to stop the Hell Lords from destroying the world. Do not worry about it. Still experiencing strange side effects from his time with Hela's powers over death, Armando then travels to Las Vegas to seek her out. On the way, he encounters Monet, who recently came back from the dead. Don't worry about it. And the two have a one-night stand. When Hela finds him, Darwin decides he's actually happy just the way he is. This is the final Darwin story in Peter David's X-Factor, which concluded with the following issue in 2013. Seven years later, after the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Armando returns in 2020's X-Men No. 5 as a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa, the site of Deadly Genesis. He is chosen alongside fellow mutants Sink and Wolverine, the girl Wolverine, formerly X-23, don't worry about it right now, to enter the Vault, an artificial reality bubble where time is exponentially accelerated. Xavier knows their powers will allow them to survive for potentially thousands of years, which will be necessary to properly investigate the threat of the post-human children of the Vault. In 2021's X-Men 19, after over a century and subjective time has passed within the Vault, 
The children kidnap Armando and atomize him, apparently destroying him in order to study and replicate his reactive adaptation power. Not great. Armando is then resurrected on Krakoa, but because he died, allegedly, in the vault, his memories of the years spent there were not able to be uploaded to Cerebro. Only Sync remembers the team's journey. With Armando's vast power now copied by Krakoa's enemies, only time will tell how Darwin the Evolving Boy will adapt next, or whether he even died in the vault at all. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back! This is a character who only has about 15 years of publication history, so there isn't as much to cover as some of the characters who have, you know, 30, 40 years to go through. But there is a lot of slightly confusing stuff, so I hope you followed along. Angelique, before we get into the reader questions, I would love to talk about your favorite stories. We talked a little bit about the World War Hulk story. We talked a little bit about the part of Peter David X-Factor where Darwin touches Hela, the goddess of death, and becomes a god himself as an adaptation to the situation, which is definitely very interesting. It spins out of his attempts to murder Rain's child, Tyr, because of a vision he's experienced, because Tyr is destined to yada, 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 don't worry about it, the Hell Lords, etc. The Hell Lords coming to Earth? What? Earth at risk? What? It's never. Truly, truly dwy. So it's just not something we have to get deep into. But that's my lead. I mean, that's if we're talking, I actually, quite honestly, what is it about stories at that specific time in the X-Men? Why are the black men hunting babies? What's that about? I Because that is right when Bishop is turning evil to chase hope also. I don't know. And I don't Bishop like is it. Australian Aboriginal, but he's certainly regarded as a black character, I think. By oh, I, I think writers. I think he has been uniformly embraced as a man of color and assumed because of the way he's being drawn yeah. as a black man. If you ask almost anyone, they would assume that Bishop is black. If you put him next to Manifold, it, they don't look the same ethnicity. You know what I'm saying? I Manifold. think that it would be very, very easy to retcon that Bishop's mother was African. And you just fix it that way. That's very, very easy to do. I mean, also, like, I don't want to... I don't know. There's some things it's complicated. that just shouldn't be retconned. Some, some things just shouldn't be retconned. It was always implied that Storm is his grandmother somehow. So I think white people just didn't understand the difference in the 90s. So there was that issue because it was white people writing it. So... Um. Anyway, that's another podcast episode. That's a whole another podcast. Tune in um, sometime later this year for an episode on Lucas Bishop. Ah, oh, Lucas Bishop. But I think I think honestly, you know, these are stories that were the product of the '90s, right? These are the stories that come out of the explosion of all of the teams of all of the new characters that happened in the '90s that bleed over into 2000s. You've got. Fans who were fans of the X-Men in the 80s who now have these books in their hands. They've got kind of carte blanche at like new X-Men do not come the way they used to come in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Like they, they just it does not happen in the same way at all. Darwin's one of the last new characters to get introduced because at the same time as Deadly Genesis, you get the decimation where Marvel's like no more new mutant characters. Oh, and we're gonna put you down to we're gonna put you down to a handful. So congratulations. Yeah, 
Congrats, we're taking them all out. Darwin comes on the tail end. It's the beginning of a lot of the retcons that happened during that time. It's the beginning of a lot of like new writers, right? Like you've got yeah. Morrison, Whedon. Like you've got a lot of new folks who've now got the X-Men in their hands. Brubaker, Carrie. Yeah. And I don't know if there was always a clear direction of where the X-Men were going at that time. I think the clear direction the X-Men were going at that time was we need to make the X-Men less important because of the movie rights issue, which is retrospectively unfortunate. They were the biggest brand in the entire industry. And over the course of, I would say, 2005 to 2015-ish, they were completely marginalized to the fringes of the company. And that's not to discount the work of Mike Carey, who I think is great at writing the X-Men. It's not to discount the work of Fraction and Gillen. The Utopia stuff is not my favorite, but there were a lot of people trying to do something. But it was very clear that we don't own these characters fully. We want there to be only 200 mutants and we want you to do self-contained plots. And if we are going to use the X-Men in a crossover, it's going to be for the purposes of pushing the Avengers or eventually pushing the Inhumans or pushing properties that we own 100% of. And I think that comes from like a lot of people just don't understand what happens when they're outside franchise deals and who you yeah. can use and who you can't use. Um, it's hugely impactful with an ongoing IP like this. But they also don't understand how big of a deal it is that Peter Parker, Tom Holland, yeah, exists both at Sony and in the MCU. Like that would not have happened and did not happen. Let's be very clear. It did not happen under previous licensing rights with the X-Men. Also, the contract was written differently. And we're not going to get into the semantics of it, but a lot of people don't understand that Sony is kind of obligated to continue making Spider-Man movies because when they don't, they lose the rights. That was a different kind of situation under the Fox situation. The Fox X-Men deal was made in a very non-advantageous situation. Marvel was essentially bankrupt. They sold the rights to their most profitable IP at the time in order to save the company. And they did it. I'm an agent. You get it. Leverage is the most important thing in a contract. And they had no leverage. So the biggest thing was any new character created who was a mutant was automatically subject to the Fox licensing deal and was not a character owned by Marvel in that sense. And so the decimation is very specifically, we're not introducing new mutant characters and we're going to make a thousand of them that have been introduced no longer relevant to the current stories that are being published because we're creating IP that we're not allowed to use. They were not allowed to merchandise. We're not allowed to like, it was a very different situation. Very, very different situation. And I think Darwin is created in part because his power enables him to do the work of like 30 different mutants. He's a very convenient character to have in your story because if there are only 198 mutant characters left, Darwin, by being one of them, can have infinite powers depending on the needs of your story. Except we go back to the thing that I don't like about Darwin is that at the end of the day, until a certain point, it changes because I think the Hella situation is a moment where it changes, right? So like Mm -hmm. 
Hella, the Hella situation is very different where he absorbs the power, which kind of harkens back to him getting himself absorbed by Vulcan. Like it's, yeah. a hark, it's a hark back to like his first story. But the difference between the World War Hulk story and the Hella story is that in World War Hulk, he runs. Right. In the Hella story, he absorbs it and he becomes the harbinger of death. Eventually he's like, no, nah, but you gotta take this back. Like I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Like I'm good. I can't, I can't live. I can't live like this. This is, this is not my bag. I don't want to do this. Not, I do you, not want to do. I this. get why you're not right here. Take it back. Yeah, no wonder you're so crazy, right? Like um, this is not a life wants I would this want. Job. No. But I say that to say, like, there are moments. That is a conflicting thing about him, though. Like, you can take in the power of a god, but you can't take in gamma rays. All right. You can see that as him developing the power over time. Like the gamma radiation incident was so challenging that the next time his adaptive body encounters a similar situation, it's able to better adapt. Yeah. Is sort of how I would no prize it, I guess. Yeah. The issue is that he can't control it, but you can put him into any story and give him a situation by contriving the situation. Like, mm-hmm. like you said about when you're drafting a team together and you're like, how do their powers work in this story? Darwin can do whatever you need him to do for your story. And so in a world where there were only 198 mutants, that was a useful But he character. has to be flawed. And that's why I'm okay at the end of the day with him running away. Because this mm-hmm. goes back to the conversation we were having about Superman. Right. Yeah. Like Superman is boring unless he has a human motivation unless, that forces him to choose to make choices. Flawed, right. And yeah. so with Darwin, you kind of hit it on the head like he's an all purpose Swiss army knife of a mutant who can literally just come in handy all the time. He has to be flawed. And so as much as I don't like that, he ran away. He can't. He You, you have to make him. He's not interesting if he's not flawed and he doesn't have problems. Well, and that's why the Claremont storm I think isn't to go back is an interesting character to look at. Storm is the most powerful X-Men by a mile. Yep. Discounting genus Phoenix, but that doesn't last that long, honestly, because it quickly becomes a narrative problem because Phoenix can get them out of any problem. Storm, you have to give her a kryptonite, first of all, which is Claremont gives her the claustrophobia. She needs to have situations where she can't just fix it. I hate the claustrophobia situation so much. I think I, I think the PTSD thing is an interesting thing, and I don't mind it because I think the character has to have a weakness. She's she otherwise does, claustrophobia. too strong. As a PTSD response to being crushed alive and watching her parents die when she was a child. All right, well, fine. It's not like she's just spooked by elevators. Like you know, she can <laughs> like it's when she. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like she has it has to be a traumatic looking situation, right? Fine. The other thing that he does is first he takes her powers away for a little bit. Like, who are you without the powers? Mm -hmm. But he also has her demonstrate certain character flaws. But she acts out of a profound moral compass and not necessarily like this is why I actually think the out I love the Outback era best. And I, I actually really like the interplay in that era between her and Betsy because Betsy doesn't really care about morals at all. And is just thinking about what the most intellectually viable strategy is. And Storm is much more like, OK, but that's evil. Like, we can't do that. And Betsy's like, oh, right. OK, sorry. Um, I suppose that is evil. Or Rogue, who's just like very like 
punch first, ask questions later. And Strobe is like, okay, but wait, we need to have a plan. By bouncing these characters off each other, he's able to characterize them. One of the things I think is done with Darwin that's really interesting is if anybody has a reason to hate Charles Xavier, it would be Darwin, right? And but yet, he loves Charles. But also, that's the con- that's the conflict that exists within his parents as well. Again, that's it what fits I was going to say. Character yeah, he's a people pleaser, and yeah. he wants his bad father to approve of him. And Xavier is that. Just like he wanted his mother, who was abusive, to approve of him, he needs Charles to love him. The only time he gets it is that conflicting moment where his dad gets the brain injury because he gets shot in the head. Yeah. Um. And he basically is like, you can, you can, you can go somewhere, like kick rocks. Yeah. But also, I still love you. Right. Like, even though you have <laughs> betrayed me so profoundly, like I can't. That's the thing is because of that story that we get at the very beginning of like, here's how he is this person. Here's why he is this person. The fact that he loves Charles, no matter what happened on Krakoa makes sense. Yeah. Cause otherwise it would be very strange. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's something where it's in keeping with the character. It's in keeping with his personality. And so of course he'll let Charles use his unfathomable powers on whatever mission because Charles is, you know, his father figure, and that's important to him. He's daddy. He's daddy X-Men. That leads us into reader questions. Cool, cool, cool. I love how you call Psylocke Betsy. It makes me, it makes me. Well, Psylocke is Kanan now. Yeah. But I also just call all the X-Men by their first names because they're my friends. I respect that. Storm, I just do find myself calling her Storm because it almost feels like it's kind of like how I'll say Chris and then I'll be like, Chris Claremont. Like, I feel like a Storm wouldn't like, I don't know Storm like that. I do. I call her Rose. <laughs> I call her Rose sometimes. We're besties. James Wiley writes, hi, love the podcast. On Darwin, why do you think he has stuck around when his power is as generally ill-defined and nebulous as Lifeguard's was? And Lifeguard was written out very quickly. So I've touched on this. I think part of it is that Lifeguard was a Claremont extreme character and that once Claremont wasn't writing the books anymore, you know, not that many other people wrote Sage either. I mean, Claremont was really into the new characters. I mean, Sage wasn't really new, but he had, for all intents and purposes, made her a new character. Lifeguard, I think Claremont wrote out because she became too difficult to write for because her power was so all-purpose. And I think that Darwin has been written out at times for the same reason. Yep. I think he sticks around because... He's flawed. Yeah, there's... Because he's flawed. There is a... There's just more there that you can play with. Yeah. Yeah. And he's interesting. Yeah. With Heather, it really is just like, first of all, She's like a Baywatch joke, which is pretty dated now, right? Like lifeguard, the lifeguard in the swimsuit with the power. Like she also, the Shi'ar plot that Chris grafts onto her narrative eventually is confusing. And a lot of people don't like futzing with the Shi'ar more than they have to. But I would like to see her come. I mean, she's been back. We've seen her on Krakoa. I would like to see her now that Deathbird is back in the mix because the implication was always that Deathbird was her mother secretly so that would be maybe fun to that she's like a human hybrid that Deathbird had long before she ever met Vulcan so Deathbird has all these kids running around that they should do something with at some point 
but yeah, I, I think that it's what Angelique is saying. Like, she was never really given time to become a full character, a fully realized person. She's not in that many issues. Darwin, in a very brief period of time, frankly, just from that backup, there's a reason that people were like, bring back Petra and Sway, who are literally nothing in the actual story, Deadly Genesis. It's just that but their backup origin back stories, stories are very moving, you know? Oh, man, that backstory about the parents, Sway's parents. Yeah, it's really good. And so you are like, wait, you feel the injustice of them dying. Like you feel that it's wrong and you and want you, them to you come want back. More of their, you want more of their story and more of their life to exist right. in canon. And now, of course, they can. But the point of Deadly Genesis was the injustice of that. Like, we will never get more of these characters because of what Charles did. It's supposed to yeah. make you feel that, which is part of, I think, why they had to walk that story back a little bit because it was so brutal to Charles in a lot. Like, you can't really bring him back from that story unless you really... <sighs> yeah. Charles so, um, another conversation. So this question's a little more complicated. We've touched on it a little bit, but I, I do think it's important to talk about. Kenneth Laster writes, question on Darwin and racial signifiers. Hi, Connor and Angelique. Big fan of the podcast. I've been really enjoying getting into these meaty deep dives this past couple weeks. Listening as I draw or go on walks is a treat. And as an ex-fan who only really got into the Claremont era a couple years ago and has played hopscotch through all of it on the way to Hickman, it's been a great resource in learning the through lines of these characters. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Now a question. I'm super curious to hear you both talk about Darwin since my only real exposure to him was in the movie X-Men First Class, which as a black fan was truly one of the top 10 most disrespectful depictions of a black person in a superhero movie, and more recently, his time in the vault in Hickman's run. The big disconnect for me was his appearance in the film and in the comics. A quick search would find that the character is meant to be biracial, but the visual representation of his mutation really would not indicate he this. Wasn't he wasn't cast very well. And he's actually not, he's actually not supposed to even, his, like, he should have had prosthetics on. Like, let's be real. Like, the, he didn't this, look like Darwin. This right, actually yeah. goes like even further than the casting. Um, and I don't. I wouldn't even say he wasn't cast well. I think there was. I don't think there was a fully actualized storyline, plot, or style, in my personal opinion. And I don't want to ding anybody who had an idea in a head or vision in their head. To me, that character wasn't Darwin. Because he doesn't even look like Darwin unless you talk about when Darwin had Hela's powers. <laughs> that is literally the only time that I've seen a picture that looks very distinctly like the very talented actor. Like, no ding, extremely talented actor that played him. Darwin also looks like a, a tadpole or something. Like, yeah, he's also an, he's a non-human looking mutant. Right, like right. Darwin is not a, and even though they they did the physicality just enough for him to fit in just enough, where it just looks like he just looks a little off. So like even at boarding school, like he's just a he fits in just enough for him to right. get teased. You know, he never grows hair. Right, Darwin doesn't have hair. Sam Gladstone writes, "Hi, Connor, and esteemed guest on the subject of Darwin." Angelique, there was a brief period where Darwin became the Asgardian god of death. We have another mutant with intimate connections with Asgard and death and Hela as well in Danny Moonstar. Should this be something the two commiserate on? Should Darwin have a stronger presence in Asgardian affairs as Danny does? Or is it better if we just sweep that under the rug and never mention it again? Thank you for your time. What do you think about that? Because you do like that story. I do like that story and I love that idea. But also, I don't think Darwin's character would like that idea. Like Darwin is right. like, no, I don't like this. This is not what I want. Also, slightly still the harbinger of death, and it is something I do not like. 
Like, I actually think Darwin would run the exact opposite. He was like, hella, here are your, here are your problems. Not my tigers, <laughs> not my zoo. I'm good. I'm going to go try to heal from me trying to save the human race. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if, I think if, Asgard was like, "Yo, Darwin, can you can you come help out with uh as the guardian affairs?" He's like, "Nah, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good." Yeah, uh, no, I don't think he would want to be involved. He's very like, "That's not my ball game, not my." It's not my bag. No, it's not my bag. Mike Smith writes, "Angelique and Connor, what's the cleverest adaptation you could think of for Darwin to randomly develop, like <gasps> when he teleported out of town when the Hulk was pissed? What would you say? What would you want to see him do?" This is because he's done so many, right? Like, Stu's had gills. He's been in space. He's learned how to read foreign alien languages. I mean, he'd be a dope tour guide and translator if he wanted to, like, go, like, on the run, uh, which is very cool because it also reminds me of, like, Echo's power to be able to, like, learn anything and everything, like, very, very mm-hmm. quickly. Um, what would be the dopest power? To be able to grow food. I know that sounds weird, but like him like being able to like save the world from hunger scarcity would be a really dope ability for him to adapt. I don't know what would have to cause his body to make right. that happen. I'm not I mean, this is probably Earth three thousand forty five and the sun is about to explode. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then suddenly there needs to be another light source so that food can grow. And then Darwin mm-hmm. steps in. I, I, But I feel like he's done. So like he breathes underwater. He's his skin is he's fireproof. I mean, he can become a genius if he needs to. That's the other thing about Doran's powers though, that I think is, is I don't like this is also like putting limitations on powers. Right. Right. It doesn't last forever. Right. Like. He's not going to always know the thing. He just knows it when he needs to know it and he could do it when he needs to do it. And then he bolts out. But have we ever seen Darwin fly? Sort of. Um, He travels through space for a minute, which is not really flying, but he he adapts to space. Uh, I think he has maybe flow. I would have to. I don't remember. It would be in. It would be in the David X Factor if he ever has. Yeah, I would have to check because I don't remember ever seeing Darwin flying. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't really have thoughts on this because. I think that you'd have to you almost have to come up with the scenario before you could come up with the adaptation right like that's why he's useful as I said as a character is he could become an engine for plot because the plot is often driven by what the characters can do and because he can do anything in a given situation you can put him in that situation so that is useful I um I thought the space thing was cool. I wouldn't mind oh, yeah. seeing more of that. Like, honestly, he would be cool out on the sword station. There's stuff he could do out there that would be interesting. Could you imagine Darwin on the Ultimates? That would be wild. It'd be wild, right? Like, the to, cl- to clarify, she means the Al Ewing Ultimates in the 616 universe, not Ultimate Avengers Ultimates. Yes, not the Ultimate Universe. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. No. Like, it's, I literally it's a like. Confusing. I just had a moment where I like. So one of my favorite panels is Monica and Blue Marvel together having a conversation, Doctor Bashir, and my brain just thought of Darwin flying outside of the spaceship, <laughs> and I was like, that would be really dope. That would be good. Yeah. 
Josiah Hickey writes, Kia Ora from New Zealand. Nice effort on our accent. Not quite there, but it's a tough one. Darwin's a character I've got a lot of affection for, but I don't even know why. Between the struggles of internalised racism and the impact of his early life in a developing child, there's a lot of potential meat to his story, but use of him has been really limited. This is probably a storytelling problem with his powers, but do you think there's a way to utilise him in an ongoing way without finding some convoluted way to hobble him? On that note, do you think there's a way to redeem this hella thing well at all? I know there was a thing he had for Monet, but that was weird. It otherwise not struck me as a character with a romantic side to him. Am I way off for not being able to see it? And is there somebody you would see him vibing with? Thanks for a highlight of every week with your amazing guests, Josiah. So do you think that there is an easy way to utilize Darwin on a team without hobbling him in some way, without giving him, uh, putting him in a contrived situation? Like, because he's so able to react to any situation. This is the way I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it, but not answer it. You got to write him more jaded. Theoretically, if he comes back from this situation and he is more jaded and he's a little bit of a harder person who then suddenly has a problem controlling his powers, I can see him being extremely useful on a team because, again, you can't write a perfect character, right? Like you can't write the good hearted, sweet people pleaser always ready to be there, but also is such a Swiss army knife that doesn't have any huge flaws unless you count being a people pleaser, huge flaw. Right. So I think he needs to, I think he could be on an ongoing team. I don't know what that ongoing team is, but look, Teeny Howard just put blade Monica Rambeau, Angela Wicken, uh, <laughs> Damien Hellstorm and his sister on a team against magical Faye. So what am I, what am I, who, who am I? To, you yeah, can make any, it work always. Anything's yeah. possible. I thought that the vault team was actually really well composed. Like the fact that it was chosen because the three of them could survive for a thousand years. Because yep, it's utility. But I also thought that the way it was written in the most recent issue in X-Men 19, you saw, now it's all through Sink's eyes which, you know, Darwin, I don't think, has a single line of dialogue in the whole issue. But that goes back to what we said about scarcity, right? Which is that, like, it's two black characters, so it's not like the black characters are silenced. It does go back to narrative scarcity when it has a, it just has a larger impact. But I think, again, there's a utilization of a tool right now because it's only going through one character's eyes. Yes, I think the way their powers functioned in the vault, it was, to me, a particularly good use of Darwin. Now, it also demonstrated the problem with sending Darwin into the field, which is that he's very easy to exploit. And there are many characters who have done this, right? So the children of the vault, what they needed to become a much bigger threat was to steal Darwin's adaptation power. It's a cautionary tale about sending him out into, you know, a situation that we haven't properly assessed beforehand. But also for a thousand years, for the most part, he was able to face just about anything that they threw at him. Mm -hmm. I think that there is something I don't know. I think this is really this is something that comes down to the strength of it, the writer, I was right? About because to say, it's like it, like with any character, period. It's it's a lot like Superman, as you were saying. Superman can do just about anything, so you have to come up with a story where it makes sense that Superman does the things he does. And that's the power of the writer, right? Like at the end of the day, yeah, 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 it all makes sense, right? Because okay, 
So this is the greatest example. Morph looks very similar to Darwin at certain points in time. Sure. Right. And I say that to say Morph morphs into other people. It's not the same kind of, but along the same lines, like, I don't know if you would put Morph and Darwin on the same team. Well, also in their natural forms, they have a similar aesthetic where they're like sort of the bald, shape-shifty, inhuman looking guy. And the reason why I bring this up Non-human looking guy, not an inhuman. Not an inhuman. (laughs) So the reason why I bring this up is like, I've never had anyone talk about Morph's appearance because you just, you know that Morph is basically clay. Like in your brain, Morph is clay, right? Right. Glob Herman is an ectoskeleton in wax. Like it, it's, and it, it just comes off differently, right? When you're, when you're dealing with these kind of things. And so I think when you look at Morph and the way he's been written versus Darwin, the way he's been written, the writers have just been able to capture, write, use, articulate that character differently. And I, I use those as examples because to me, like in my head, I'm like, eh, they could be genetic cousins, right? Like the the, right. the, the mutant genes is manifested differently, but right. you've had different writers. And so the question is like, is there a writer that's going to pick up Darwin and give Darwin texture? Um, and, and what does that mean? Right. Cause I think one of the things, and the reason why I brought up strike force, um, which is what I was talking about, but blade and Monica, um, I brought up strike force because one of the things I love about strike force and I'm a teeny Howard Stan. Sorry. Um, Uh, I mean, same obviously, but, um, one of the things I love about strike force is that the writer teeny was able to articulate in depth stories where each character was allowed to shine Mm -hmm. and one of the things i think has been kind of the underlying thing is that when armando muñez is handled by a writer that no like like is 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 it like knows the direction and where you really want to shine and it's hard right it's real hard because the blessing and the curse of having a backstory that's so definitive is like what else do you say now? Like, what else is there for this character? What makes sense? We just haven't gotten there yet. It feels to me like the way you take this character is to take him to a place. And I think this is kind of what Peter David was trying to do with the Hela arc and with all the stuff with Tyr is like, take him to a place where he grows out of the need to please other people. Ding, 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 ding. And I think that spinning out of the vault we may see some of that because it might have been his last straw. Right. The fact that his power has now been compromised by their enemies because Charles sent him into this situation. Maybe even if he doesn't remember the experience of the vault, the thing that has him going, you know, I'm going to stop doing things just because you asked me to do them because it never makes things better. Ding. (laughs) That's it. In fact, we just made it significantly worse. So, you know, drop drop the mic right that's where i think you take the character is what does darwin want for darwin when he's not worried about pleasing dad and that has never truly been articulated outside of his crush on monet which i thought was odd as i've said but and and as josiah said i think that the romantic element of the character he clearly does have a romantic drive in whatever sense I think that it would take a special kind of character to be okay with the fact that he looks like an unevolved 
tadpole most of the time. Like he, he's oh, not. Uh... No, I'm serious. This is a problem that some of the X-Men with more visible mutations run into, right? It's a fact that someone like Nightcrawler, even though he's an attractive blue furry mutant guy, he is very has attractive. a different situation in the dating world than someone like Cyclops does. It's just true. Darwin takes that to kind of an extreme because he has this sort of amphibian, non-human looking, almost like a fetus kind of thing going on where he doesn't look like he's finished cooking, right? I think that there are characters, though, who you could do that with in ways that would make sense. I think he and Husk would vibe, actually, which is like maybe random and maybe weird because she and Monet go back a long ways. But like you had the weird ass arc I don't love with her and Toad, but also her first love interest was Chamber. Like she's always been someone who can look past like the freakish mutations, so to speak. And they also have similar powers in that they adapt for situations once they get control over it. Like eventually she's able to choose to husk into things. I don't know. Maybe they would just be interesting friends, but those are two characters I wouldn't mind throwing together and seeing what happens. Word. Kurt McGirt asks, shouldn't Darwin be the only X-Man who can see and remember Forget-Me-Not? That is a good point, but I don't think that remembering Forget-Me-Not has ever been key to Darwin's survival. Yeah. So I think if it ever There's like came, a very thin line of about what... Like if it became a situation where someone has to remember Forget-Me-Not or we're all going to die, I bet Darwin would. Agreed. Last question. Matteo Manzati writes, Hello, Connor and Angelique. Matteo from Italy here. First of all, thank you for the podcast. It truly is something I look forward to every week for seven months now. Well, thank you. That's very Aww. sweet. I started reading comics around the time Brubaker and Carrie were writing the two main titles, so I immediately experienced the highs and the lows of the franchise. One of the first arcs I read was Deadly Genesis, which at the time seemed mysterious and cool. I was 13 and knew nothing about the characters yet. I now find it shallow and boring, but it did introduce me to Darwin, one of my favorite X-Men. Plus, he's so hot, even more so in the latest X-Men issue. So there you go. Matteo Manzotti would like to date Darwin. And clearly, Look, I'm found, the shallow one. You found one. a date. You found I a date I found someone right who there. thinks Darwin's hot. So there you go. And I personally don't think Darwin looks freakish. Like, I think he looks like he can evolve in a moment. It looks like his body is ready to be malleable. I honestly. He, like, doesn't have ears. I don't know. It just, like. I don't, it, like, for me, like, I still think, like, <laughs> I don't. I guess he does have ears. Why do I feel like he doesn't have ears? He, Maybe he, he just does it sometimes. That's what I'm saying. He he reminds you so much of Morph. That's that's why I use Morph as an example is because they have a lot of similarities in their physicality. But Darwin is a lot more evolved. And I think there were times where people made him more gray. Like it, it depended on the yeah. artist. Like he's been more gray in certain more brown in different in different books. And what I remember is more of obviously you get him in the first couple. Oh, he has no ears in Deadly Genesis. That's why. I yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like but he's, he's had ears since. Yeah. As he's evolved and as he's continued to go up in the years, like artists have been able to flip. Well, I was about to say flesh out, flesh out his look. <laughs> and he's gone a little bit more from that initial unfazed. I honestly will say. And I will say this is like one of the cool things that I hope that this is the reason that even if it's not, I'm embracing it as his powers developed, as he developed, as he grew as a mutant, he became more fleshed out. Yeah. And a lot of times artists will do that. Writers will do that. They'll write that in the notes. It's like that's one of the things about Cena Grace's 
Iceman is like if you if you look at the difference between young Iceman and older Iceman in that time paradox that's happening is that he will tell you he specifically goes he's sleeker he's older he's right. more developed he has more he has more control over his powers and therefore he should look it yeah i i think also that like darwin became much hotter toward the end of the peter david x factor after all the stuff with hella and all of that like as you've pointed out he looks like he's fully formed finally sort of after that experience but again, a lot of it just comes down to um, to the artist. The question, yeah. which I thought was fun. So Mateo writes, as for the actual question, you said previously on the pod that you like Petra and Sway because you like their origins and the backups. This seems to be the consensus of X fans in general. Do you or your guests have any other X characters you love that come from really bad stories or that became more interesting the further they went away from their original creation? Thanks for everything you do, Mateo. So is there anything like that that you that you want to talk of or is that too... I love when people do this. Um, Man, so the weird thing about me, and like this is honest to God, I don't know if you've been able to tell. I hope the readers or the listeners are able to tell. I can find the good in almost anything. <laughs> like seriously, and I don't I That's don't a useful try skill. it. I don't, it's not something that I have to work on. I literally, my brain bifurcates something that I enjoy, even if it's, you know, other people like it's not great. But I will be like, the artwork is amazing. The line work is amazing. The sure. backstories are there. The pacing was so good. I love the device they used with doing the backstories. I don't think I don't think I've ever taken a comic book, at least not a Marvel comic book, and just thrown it and be like, this is trash. But I like this character. Like it's just not. <laughs> it's not. It's not how my brain functions. Mm-hmm. Man, most of the characters I love end up getting more longevity somewhere and they're handed over to another writer that does them justice yeah i mean i was gonna say the one that jumps out to me and she's like not a super favorite of mine or anything but i like her is domino i think is a character who gets much 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 stronger under successive writers than she was when she was first introduced in the liefeld x-force as just kind of a hot mercenary chick you know it was a very surface level character who then became a very different character. I think that's true of a number of characters from the early 90s where the look was the emphasis over the characterization and then they Yeah, evolved. it was a different it was a different comic book era. Yeah, no, like exactly, like the whole the look first thing was the point. Like it was about the visuals and the emphasis wasn't on the characterization in that moment and so I think that as other writers picked up Domino or Shatterstar or, you know, other Deadpool, other characters from that period where they hadn't been explored that in depth. I mean, first, Nisiesa, I think, does a lot of work there in X-Force in his run on that book. But then I think that it just as the further away it gets, the more writers who were more interested in character motivation get to write those characters, which I think is fun. A really random one that I, like a 90s character who has not even one Zaladane. Angelique, if you're not familiar, on this podcast, a Zaladane is a unit of measurement for 12 issues because that's how many issues Zaladane has appeared in. Zaladane has just become sort of a stealth mascot for the pod. It just happened kind of organically. Darwin has appeared, for the record, five Zaladanes. Five and a half, I guess. 
That's substantial. Yeah, it's pretty substantial for a character that's only been around for 15 years. But the character I was going to say who is from like kind of a, a shitty mid-90s story, it's between the first Peter David X Factor and the Howard Mackie X Factor is there's this character Haven Radhadastor mm-hmm. who's this villain. She's a cult leader. She's from India. She has all of these vast powers that are really wild. And it turns out that it's because she has a mutant fetus was ne- that never fully gestated and has just stayed in her and has boosted whatever powers to this extreme level. And eventually it turns out that the fetus basically the fetus has limitless mutant potential so the adversary the cosmic being that they dealt with in fall of the mutants ends up trying to rebirth himself into the world through haven's fetus and it doesn't end well for her so she's only in about seven issues and she's a bad guy but that's a character i think would be really fun to bring back on krakoa with the religious overtones that certain things about mutants are taking on in this era in the wider world. The idea of resurrecting Haven and having her start her cult back up when we know now that there are in the wake of Krakoa, like human cultists worshiping mutants in messed up ways. I think that could be really interesting. Like why not do an India adventure with like Neil Shara or somebody where they like deal with Haven again. I think that could be fun. Interesting. Cause that's like a real nineties, real insane story, but the character was interesting. She had different motivations. I like when these mutant characters have political motivations that are really different from the Charles and Eric politics that we're used to. Yeah. When she's like, well, I am a God on earth. It'd be interesting to juxtapose her to Aurora also. Like there's stuff you could do with that character. So that's just one where it's like from a storyline I wouldn't recommend anyone read, but where I always was sort of intrigued. There are lots of characters like that in the X-Men because there are about 5 billion characters. Part of the premise of this podcast is that everyone is someone's favorite. I don't think very much about Darwin, but you hopped right up and were like, I'd love to talk about Darwin. I was like, let's do it, you know, because there's always someone who's passionate about just about everybody. Yep. Is there anything you'd like to say about Darwin before we start to wrap? No, I mean, I think I have gotten... My share of my feelings about Mr. Munez out. I'm looking forward to seeing where his story goes, honestly. And I think he it really is such a heartfelt character mm-hmm. that like puts himself in the line of danger. Because this is the thing I want people to kind of remember. His power isn't to evolve to save other people. His power is to evolve to save himself. Right. And he has decided to be a hero therefore saving other people right because that is the contradiction that a lot of people just don't realize like he has gotten more control over it now where he can make his power do things but in the beginning Mm -hmm. he decided to be a hero and run into danger knowing that his powers and abilities would allow him to save other people in the act of saving himself. Yeah, he could absolutely just be some like Hellfire Club type guy who's out for himself and doesn't give a shit, particularly given how Can you imagine if he became a villain? Him. Can you be- believe if he became a villain and he decided to go rob banks? Yeah, like we'd be fucked. There's nobody stopping Darwin if he decides to be that guy. So it's almost the reverse of the Superman thing you brought up a while back, which is that like Superman becomes interesting when you give a man with the selflessness baked in 
reason to be selfish because he has a family he cares about. Darwin is a character who is the ultimate selfish character in terms of generation because his power makes him indestructible to the point where he doesn't have to worry about anyone else, but instead he chooses to worry about other people. In fact, a character it might be interesting to bounce him off is Empath, mm. who similarly is being explored in Hellions right now as someone who, by dint of his power, has never needed to have any actual empathy for other people. Like his name is ironic, right? Because he sees people only as instruments or toys. And for Darwin, who exists in a world that is essentially solipsistic. He can always survive. The world will always go on in a way that he can deal with. Like, you know, Darwin doesn't have to worry about global warming. Darwin doesn't have to worry about food scarcity. Darwin doesn't have to worry. Like, it's not... If the world blew up tomorrow, Darwin could breathe in space and then find another planet. And then his body would just adapt to the next atmosphere. Exactly. So it is an active choice that he is always making to use that power in the service of helping people, even when he did kind of a heel turn with the trying to kill tear stuff, it was because he was trying to save other people, right? The earth will end or whatever. And it wouldn't end for him. That's the key point because he could just become a demon or whatever. Like it, his power would enable him to survive hell on earth, but he didn't want it to happen to his friends. And that's what I like about Darwin. That is, I think, the key and his sort of endlessly forgiving nature is interesting because he is someone who has been abused from early childhood and who has never really escaped that toxic relationship with parental or authority figures and yet he always chooses to forgive. And sometimes that's a character flaw and sometimes it's a character strength. I'm also interested to see where he goes. I think Hickman clearly has a lot of affection for those four characters introduced in Deadly Genesis and wants to make them something more than they've been necessarily allowed to be. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested to see where that goes. I love it. Well, Angelique, thank you so much for being my guest. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on the web and plug anything and everything you would like to plug. <laughs> Take it away. Uh, you can find me at AngeliqueRocher.com. Uh, I'm on IG at AngeliqueRocherOfficial. Also on TikTok at AngeliqueRocherOfficial. Uh, I'm on the Twitters at AngeliqueRocher because uh, I luckily got in soon enough to get my name. Yeah, someone's been squatting on Connor Goldsmith for 10 years. It drives me crazy. They uh, don't even tweet. Oh, same thing with IG. Somebody's been sitting yeah. on AngeliqueRocher. I bought that for... one from somebody. I DM'd they him they and won't I was even like, answer. please. They won't even answer. And then, you know, I'm right now we're we're working on a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff is coming up. None of it I can talk about. The eternal Marvel talent problem when I have Marvel guests is like, well, you know, there's lots of things you're going to love in a couple of months that we could talk about in the future. But sorry. But you have a podcast situation. Tell the people about the podcast. Uh, so you can check out uh, Marvel's Voices uh, as well as Women of Marvel, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I also do lots of other cool stuff for Ace Comic Con. Um, I've got lots of stuff that's on the interwebs from Sci-Fi Wire when I was doing on-air hosting with them, from C2E2, uh, as well as uh, Who Won the Week. Well, if it's still up there, I don't know. I haven't I haven't <laughs> checked the tubes in a while. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, just type in onto the crochet. I'm I'm lucky to be one of those folks where you can type it in and find stuff about me. 
Um, as well as I do production work. Uh, I do short production work for nonprofits and uh, social justice organizations uh, trying to get messages out. So there's a couple of pieces yeah. that I worked on in 2020 uh, and looking to do some more stuff in 2021. I'm also on Twitch playing Laura Croft right now. Tomb Raider Definitive Edition. Where are you on Twitch? Twitch.com slash... Uh, it's just, I believe it's just Angelique Roche. Uh, All yeah. right. Well, there you go. It is Angelique Roche on Twitch. Um, you'll know it's me uh, because it says that in the background. <laughs> I try to stay on brands. <laughs> You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram as Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at Cerebrocast.com where you can also find a link to the Cerebro fan Discord server, which is a lot of fun. Please don't bring any bad vibes. You can also find a link there to the Patreon, patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, which is new. Thank you so much for all the support. I am kind of blown away. Join the House of Zaladane tier, which is just $5 a month. The first bonus episode will be dropping this week, first week of April, uh, or I guess it's the second week of April. April started in the middle of, you get what I'm saying. It will be up soon, and I am excited to do these monthly bonus episodes that are sort of listener-directed. So please join us. You can write into Cerebro with your questions at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will feature legendary Marvel writer and editor Anne Nascenti, who will be here to talk about one of her famous creations, Mojo, King of the Airwaves, Spineless One, Ruler of Mojo World. But you may feel free to write in about any of her other iconic creations, Longshot, Spiral, Typhoid Mary. I would ask that we try to keep it X focused, so not too deep into the Daredevil weeds, just because I haven't reread that in a while. But Typhoid Mary is a mutant, so you can write in about her if you want. You can write in about Jesse Drake if you want. That's a mutant character. I'm just saying, like, we'll figure we'll figure it out. But if you have questions for Anne Nascenti, who I can't honestly believe I got on the podcast, please write in to cerebrocast at gmail.com. That will be coming to you next week. And until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening, as always, and bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is left.